0: Hello and welcome to the show. This is Gregory Conti, and I'm here with William. This week's episode will cover the book Hetze gegen Deutschland by Otto Ernst Reimer. This is a, a German book written by one of the great National Socialist heroes of the Second World War and after, who we'll talk about in some detail. The book's title means Warmongering Against Germany, and it has not been translated in English, which is why we took the time to plow through 100 pages of German to bring it to the people. <laughs> Forerunning, one might say. So. so I guess the, the reason that we thought this book was worth reading, and we only read the first 100 pages, which covers the, the lead up to and the, the execution of World War One, the next 400 or so pages talks about interwar years and in World War Two. We'll probably get to that later. But there was just so much material in the first 100 pages that we had to just break it off and, and talk about that by itself the value that i saw in the book personally is that it is the like unapologetic national socialist approach to world war one there's a lot of literature about the outbreak of world war one there's like stacks and stacks and stacks of it and it's probably one of the most complicated questions in in history and i I started to get the sense of this when i started reading krieg because i was like i don't remember who this guy is i don't know who this guy is uh talking about like bertman holweg or sasanov the russian minister or or um a lot of people and i was like man i have to i have to go read back up on this stuff because this is actually quite complicated so yeah it became the, a, a a university course in and of itself just to get through the you know first few yeah ago. i mean it, one of the the more recent books on the topic by a uh, british historian christopher clark he t- he stresses the point that this is actually a super complicated question because you're not just dealing with like, two sides it's not like you're talking about the russians and the americans and the cuban missile crisis you're dealing with five or six or eight independent characters. But Those are just the major characters. Yeah, the so major like, ones. So as, like, as compared
1: yeah. to the interwoven alliances between all the others that span over basically a century prior to that. So.
0: Right. Yeah, so the main characters would be you know, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Russia, France, Britain. And then, yeah, you've probably got... You've, ser- technic- you've got, technically, technically got... To have, Italy, you've really technic- got to have Serbia, Italy, and Turkey. Yeah, those are your peripheries at the time. Well yeah.
1: that's it like uh the Ottoman Empire being the the crumbling infrastructure at that point. Well I, I would say that's the kind of a, that's one of the crux elements too, is before we just jump into that or whatever, is is that the Ottoman Empire's crumbling influence in uh the Balkans is one of the biggest uh mm-hmm. I guess pressure cooker elements to to the lead up of this of this conflict because you had time well because people became desensitized like they are now with reading about conflicts overseas back then in the papers of you know of Europe by saying oh there's another murder in the Balkans oh there's another bombing in the
0: Balkans and this oh yeah the the Balkans was just as actually probably more crazy and insane than it was even in our lifetimes i mean as as crazy as the yugoslav war was like the balkans in the early 1900s was was nuts probably we'll we'll talk about that (laughs) in a little bit but first i just want to talk about uh, the author Raymer. so for those if you've seen the movie uh valkyrie (laughs) which is like it's one of those nazi movies that actually makes them look really cool i mean if you're of the right sort of mindset. I don't right, know. Maybe, yeah. maybe liberals watch it and they're like, "Oh my god, feel so bad." It's it's tragic. It's so, I, it's so. I remember watching that like ten years ago and thinking this is so cool. And... I was
1: the thing that upset me the most, though, was again having to rewatch the concept of von Stauffenberg be a traitor i think that was the (laughs) like you obviously like they
0: want you to sympathize clearly with with Stauffenberg yeah yeah but the cool guy in the movie is the actor who plays Raymer yes who is the commander of the the Vach battalion the the guard unit that puts down coup d'etat attempt the swimming pool and yes so (laughs) so uh the swimming pool, so if you've seen the movie, there's a famous scene, or somewhat famous, like everyone references it and jokes about it. There's this scene where the German major, I think he's a major at the time, is swimming in this giant swimming pool with like marble columns and mosaics, there's a <laughs> giant swastika on the bottom of the pool. Absolute decadence. And then he, he <laughs> pops out of the water like James Bond, or like, no, like Halle Berry, and <laughs> like whisks the water off as, as, a, as an adjutant hands him the orders to, uh, to get the to call out the regiment, and he's like, oh, this better not be a drill. <laughs> Assemble, <laughs> the Assemble the men. <laughs> <laughs> and no, then that, he goes that story, back to swimming. That's the best no, no. part. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that story is kind of actually how it happened. So Raymer's other book, he wrote two books that I know of. I don't think there's any other. He wrote two books, the one we're going to talk about today, Kriegherze, and um, then he also wrote Verschwörung und Verrat um Hitler, Conspiracy and Treason Around Hitler. And in that book, he talks about his experience on July twentieth, and he does reference the pool incident. So he was ac- <laughs> he was in fact having lunch with a couple Spurgs who were talking about the high- some like ninth or tenth century Saxon poem, and um, it, 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 like the kind right. of conversations <laughs> that we have all the time, right? Yeah. And he was sort of a jock bro, and he just couldn't take it anymore, and so he says He says, "Oh, I I I left a conciliatory bottle of wine on the table and went to the pool to get ready for my next <laughs> my next uh, time on the front. Can't handle any more of these Spurgs. I'm out. <laughs> he, he, but he wasn't at some giant private pool. He wasn't bathing like he was in the Roman Emperor Diocletian or something. He was... Which would have made him cooler. Still, he <laughs> was at a public swimming pool. <laughs> right. In the middle of a park in Berlin, so... Not quite as like evil and villainous as the movie makes it seem. To be
1: fair, though, I don't know if that's if that's their version of evil villainous or whatever. It's that's the, been kind of the issue over propaganda. Not to get off on a tangent over the past you know century or whatever, but the propaganda kind of they, they always this, makes the they have this bad problem of look making too cool. Germans
0: look really cool.
1: Well, it's because you can't not. I mean, they actually <laughs> did. It's like when you had top designers designing your uniforms and you had like the best architecture in all of Europe. yeah, the, the yeah Engineering yeah. and everything else.
0: Yeah. You know? So he crushed the coup and. Th- you know, it's that's a whole a whole nother story about that. It, it seems like a lot of the plotters before the coup did not think that Raymer was a committed National Socialist, and if anything they, they they've, proved if, the contrary. Used the expression they fucked around, they found out. <laughs> I hate that expression, it's so stupid. Yeah, but it but, fits <laughs> so
1: unfortunately well most of the time. Like a lot of these, a lot of these Zoomer terms really do have. Um, I guess it's the refinement of. You know, terrible language. <laughs> they they really kind of hit the nail on the head with a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah, like uh, what what are the other two? Uh, it be like that, uh, which I don't always... want to talk about. That <laughs> word. I, I, no. yeah, well, not a go on okay.
0: that tangent, but <laughs> so a- after after he crushed the coup, uh, a few hundred people were executed. He just went back to frontline service. So yeah, he he finished out the war at major general, and then um, you know, like everybody else, he got Nuremberg trialed. and he got put away for. He got interned for a couple years they released him in 1947. I'm
1: actually surprised that they released him
0: That is uh, it is somewhat surprising uh, Yeah, that they didn't shoot him or yeah. him or something like but that I, I, else. I, It's it he was like not political enough He really just if you are I mean back then almost the system was sort of fair if you were an officer and all you did was crush a coup attempt and Get several hundred people killed. I mean they shouldn't have done the coup maybe right <laughs> <laughs> I think that's your job. it's like being a janitor do you blame a janitor for like cleaning up shit like no no it's, it's, you it's blame like, the guy who did this like you, yeah. you, you did this bad thing right right so then after that he had a rather rather colorful career around the world. He went to the Middle East no actually I'm skipping ahead he in the nineteen early 1950s he founded the Socialist Reich Party which you know, <laughs> as, as we all know, Germany's constitution previ- uh, forbids the founding of new Nazi parties or anything that is like a National Socialist Party in any way. Right. The Socialist Reich Party really tiptoed up to that line, and I, I think their, the the core of their program was okay. Germany lost whatever, but somebody still needs to lead Europe. Maybe Germany should be the one to lead Europe under you know NATO hegemony. Well,
1: that's kind of the thing. Is like there was still that sentiment of a of a a European union style of thing or a unified European conglomeration, you know, a confederacy of the European nations, however it was, regardless of what side of the war you were on, that was still kind of like the general principle of what was moving towards as far as politics were concerned. Um, you know, like, obviously, you know, we'll get into that way later in different episodes or whatever about Callergy and, and the pan-European movements and all that other stuff. But even within the National Socialist movements, there was always still that that kind of drive, even beyond the nationalism and all that other stuff. You still had this drive towards a European Union, and which would have made sense as to why they were like, okay, fine. And, yeah, know, in other like, words,
0: Raymer was doing what the system wanted to do, which was build a European Union. He just was too explicit about... About how they were doing it, they're just doing it the cool way. That's yeah, kind of the issue. Well, they I, 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 it was that, but he also just sort of said like, "Yeah, Germany needs to be in charge." And I was like, "No, shut up!" Like, well, right, that's they, something you could say in like the '80s. That's not something you could say in the '50s. I, sure, even though yeah, they were, even though they yeah. were, you know, setting Germany back up, rebuilding the Bundeswehr. So after the Socialist Reich Party was founded and then declared legal by the German state, <laughs> Reimer left, fled, left. Who knows these days and went to Egypt, of all places. And he wasn't the only one. There, was a, there were a few other That was a popular
1: destination at the went time. went to Egypt
0: <laughs> to assist the Egyptian military in fighting Israel. You don't <laughs> say. <laughs> <laughs> so he yeah, became friends with uh, Abdel Nasser. Right. And he was the German guy, German soldier who converted to Islam. Yeah, there was a... There we, like, was went a few, full was... LARP. Raymer did not go full LARP. He just—he's like I'm still a, I'm still a European now, but I will help you. He didn't with adopt your problem. the whole Sufi personality and all that. No, no. <laughs> he later was like a—I mean, this is all according to Wikipedia, so who knows on some of his life story because there really isn't a lot of information widely available about his life. He—he he writes about his war service and. You know, nobody's. I, to my knowledge, nobody's written a biography of him that includes his post-war life. So a lot a of lot these, a lot of hearsay. big names.
1: Yeah, it's it's. There's a lot of. Uh, but if 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 half of the hearsay is true, it's really cool, <laughs> because then he. So now we're s- approaching myth and legend, which is even better. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. He so. he
0: started he started dealing arms and sent a lot of, sold a lot of <laughs> arms to the Algerians to fight the French. Which, Which, you okay. know, maybe not the most <laughs> pro-European thing you could do, but... True, but I can Monk imagine can at,
1: in his position, right, post, post-World post War II, I can imagine that he was a little
0: butthurt. <laughs> yeah, there, there might have been a little bit of animosity there right. and just wanting to, you know, get back to Gaul. <laughs> get back to Gaul.
1: You know, that's, yeah. So, yeah, let yeah, no, actually, there's one more One more
0: thing to mention about his life. So, after the Middle East adventure, he came back to Europe and started... You know, kept doing the right-wing politics, kept, or I should say, national socialist politics. Right. Yeah. Because kept it's kept writing newsletters wing, yeah. and and doing conferences. Apparently, he met David Irving. He also sent money again, allegedly, according to Wikipedia, to Fred Leuchter. So overall, a cool guy. That's... And he got kicked out, or he got criminally convicted of Holocaust denial in the early '90s, and filed tons of appeals. Filed appeals to the. European Court of Human Rights. That's very unfortunate. (laughs) And when they're about to throw him in prison, he's like, nah, not doing that, and ran away to Spain. Presumably hung out with Franco well, Franco was dead, but whoever whoever was. Francoists were
1: still obviously there in Spain in the nineteen nineties, whatever. There's still a large nationalist sentiment in Spain for
0: the most part. Yeah, for sure. Still a good harbor, you know. It's like Argentina. (laughs) Yeah. That's Raymer's life. But getting into the war guilt question. So the book Kriegherrschaft in Deutschland, I'm just calling it Kriegherrschaft for short, uh, war mongering. Raymer basically lays out the thesis that it was the people responsible for World War One were not the Germans, not the Kaiser, and he doesn't do some wishy washy thing where where he alleges that it was just everybody was was guilty. No, no, no. According to Raymer, it was the Jews, the liberals the Freemasons and the Catholics.
1: Very specific list of people. Now, he mostly,
0: you know, there's, like, there's some caveats here. He mostly talks about Jews and liberals. There is and there is a good bit of Freemason stuff in there. Yeah. And, unfortunately, the main problem I have with this book is he doesn't, there's not a lot of notes and right. not a lot of citations. Right. <laughs> and, and a lot of names, some of the names are spelled wrong, or, like, first names are missing, English phrases. He, English clearly wasn't his thing, because well right yeah, yeah. <laughs> english phrases are like screwed up it's but like if we if you just read freemason like without going to the whole freemason masonry thing if you just read freemason it's like globalist elite because i it, personally, it makes sense
1: no true and i i agree i just i honestly feel that raymer's favorite movie during the time of the reich was um well, uh, goebbels piece on uh what was it yeah uh, that had to have been his favorite piece of, of film because it goes over so many of the same talking points as far as who was responsible for certain lead ups uh-huh. to things, um, as far as the financial world is concerned and everything else like that. Again, the, the Freemason part. where The, he Freema- the
0: Freemason up. thing is like it, it's like talking about the Rothschilds. It's like yeah, yeah, you know, you know, there's something going on there, but there's just so much misinformation. And well, and like,
1: that's kind of the thing is that I would have, like, it's, I would imagine that he didn't even actually read any books of it. Not to, not, not to attack him or anything. I just think I don't, I don't think, think he don't, read books
0: at all. Actually. It, that's also
1: <laughs> cool, right? Don't get me wrong, but I honestly think that he didn't read books on it on the. The topic. I think he just watched Goebbels films and he's just like, I, This is why I'm not putting references in it because I don't have a citation. It's just I watched this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: no, you bring up a good point. Like reading this, I sort of got the feel. I think I got a little bit of a feel for Raymer's character and he, he comes across as sort of a, like a, a national socialist Alex Jones. Yeah. <laughs> he's just like very in your face and like very much the, the athletic jock who doesn't really read books but is writing a book because he has stuff to say Yeah, you know, the french are turning the alsatians gaze <laughs> but it's not to say it's 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 not worth reading uh it is definitely no. it's it's it,
1: definitely an interesting piece to, to go through for sure so just to have that perspective to have that opposite perspective of things from from the front lines right, right. And, and you because and it's not really that academic that's i mean it is to an extent right in and of itself but it's not written from an academic perspective, which gives you a, a kind of a, a more nuanced, down-to-earth take on how these types of events were seen by the average generals and average people that were living at the time that weren't academics.
0: Yeah, it's also the other nice thing about Raymer's take on the whole thing is in presenting the unapologetic pro-Germany view on things, he's sort of following, It's you can compare it to some of the early uh, 1920s people who talked about the war guilt question. Two I want to talk, mention are, are William Henry Barnes and um, Sidney Fay,
1: mm. who
0: both wrote books on World War One. Fay wrote Origins of, World War, of the First World War, and Barnes wrote The Genesis of the World War. Both these guys were like big journalists, big academics, very well-known people, wrote a ton of books. Barnes wrote like 30 books, I think, and they're just— That's com- prolific. They're completely forgotten today because they were buried. Barnes got buried after—in the 1950s because he was— Saying the holocaust was b s which right. is you know obviously true
1: right you know any any academic inquisition into that <sighs> will just destroy it
0: yeah but um, that was
1: a the thing there was a huge there was a huge um, move after the after the first world war and then they because they even had movements to try to ratify the Treaty of Versailles post facto in the 1930s to remove the clause of that Germany was uh, you know so Germany and its allies were solely at guilt for the war um, because of all the, the, the historical documents that were coming out on top of that they even gave credit to um, to Austria for coming out immediately in 1919 by dropping all of their their documents that were supposed secret mm-hmm. um and england and france had yet to do anything like that even up through the 1920s so it, it gave the the the, perce- the perspective or the perception that germany and austria were less guilty than the the victor parties because they were being more open so you know like more um transparent with their their information and a lot of these revisionists i Faye put that specifically in his book yeah. uh where he was talking about that there was a major move towards that um I would imagine that he got buried because of things like that too, because he wanted to remove the whole concept of guilt and make it. He said he said he wanted to replace the concept of war guilt with war responsibility, which kind of made sense, because the responsibility for the war was divvied out amongst all powers at the time, or it should have been anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. So some of those early twentieth, early nineteen twenties or nineteen twenties historians did. It's almost like the war. The question of like what happened in World War One was very much more rationally and critically examined right after the war right. than it is than it was later in the century, because especially in the fifties, in the nineteen well, it was nineteen sixties. German guy by the name of Fritz Fischer wrote a book called Cliff nach der Weltkrieg," grabbing for or no, not Weltkrieg, Weltmacht, gra- oh. grabbing for world power. Yeah, or how do you? What's, well it's yeah. like you know it's like world making like the, the well no of... i mean the gr- the griff part griff nach. attempt on i guess we'd say yeah attempt, attempt on world power something like that and he he, went which, very, he that... just adamantly blamed germany for everything and this was translated yeah. into into every european language and it caused a huge a huge like debate in germany and all over the world about the guilt on, in world war one which is strange that this is happening in the 1960s right every um, visitation
1: and... is something they thought was already finished for them yeah right? i
0: thought everyone everyone thought Up until then, it was sort of the consensus that uh, everyone was kind of guilty and World War I was a tragedy and and bad books from more recent times. Like I mentioned, Christopher Clarke, Sleepwalkers uh, Mm. book. And then there's another book that came out uh, also by a British guy called uh, Ring of Steel by Watson, which it's funny because the Ring of Steel book is about Germany and Austria in the war. And it's by a guy who's a scholar of like German and Central European history but he's a brit bong and i, I, I guess i uh sorry a, a british person <laughs> and and i guess you don't get into academia anymore unless you're like kind of a shit bag because yeah it just the he just assumes that Germany's guilty yeah you're like it, it, it's so weird reading it you're like well wait a second you can't just say like oh they instigated the war uh that's a whole question and at least clark is much more open about it and says, well, this is an extremely complicated question. Well, so most people
1: just take propaganda these days as fact. If like if it was propaganda 40 years before you were born, it becomes fact in, in your time period for the most part is what they're looking at it as. Yeah. That's well. in my opinion, that's the way most academics today think about things. Or they just think it's easier to attain academic prowess by just accepting all this propaganda as fact. So why don't, they, why don't we
0: go through, like, what, what is the story that you uh, will have heard about the – up? the like lead up to world war one like what's the standard narrative that you're taught in high school
1: oh okay so between how how i woke well, up so luckily i was homeschooled for most of my life so i got a different like a different take than most people did oh yeah i i got a i got a really a really interesting nuance take so i um just to preface that or whatever i first heard the term brothers war um when learning about the american civil war when i was about 10 for my 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 mom um, so that was like that kind of theme was always present including in the first world war when I was learning about that now if we want to discuss how most people unfortunately get taught you know that's kind of the deal well actually you you probably you had the public school um uh Teaching, so I'm assuming I'll let you tell no. how how you were you were unfortunately taught for the lead up. So this is how I was taught about the lead up to World War One and what what the the process was. Clearly, there is the, the 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 match on the tinder box that everybody knows about, and that's the um, the assassination of the Archduke. Right? right. Everybody talks about that. But as far as the lead up was concerned, um, I was taught a lot about the schism culturally that happened uh, between Germany and France post 1871. Uh, that was a major crux moment uh that I was dis- that that was discussed for the lead up to the war um and alsace lorraine or uh, you know alsace lorraine however you want to you know say it if you're french or german or if, you know you want to be in Alsatian and and try to become independent you know that's a different thing so this this piece of land um was a really kind of a, a pivotal piece to the whole first world war that, that as far as i was concerned um or how i was taught anyway because uh, there was this back and forth between France and Germany over Alsace um, And and the the industrial elements to that as far as economics were concerned and when Germany regained that in 1871 uh, they took a large amount of France's industrial power out of out of their their repertoire And yeah. so it was a major blow to France and obviously it was one of those things where the French weren't like it's, You know how the French and Germans are there's like there's one pity-patty thing after the other so the fact that Germany and France were eventually going to go to war again was kind of a, a, a given. Right now, the the whole question with England, though, that was the big issue because England and Germany weren't weren't major enemies, right up to that point. It had never been the case where Germany and England were ever at each other's throats on a on a grand scale, um, you know, economically, militarily, or anything else. Like they had their differences, but it was never
0: um yeah usually i mean napoleonic wars and like uh seven years war england and prussia were on the same team against france right even in even Austria. in the american revolution you know that there was
1: german forces fighting on the side of the english while obviously that wasn't like the prussian military sending troops over it was still the fact that you had cooperation between german forces and, and, and british forces yeah um and then obviously england had holdings uh, in their aristocracy in hanover and other places for for many generations so there's there's always been a, a very interlinked um uh, kind of un not not an alliance, but it's an unspoken kind of alliance between Germany and England up to that point, until you had the outbreak of um, I wouldn't say the outbreak. Oh, I guess outbreak is a good term because the the alliances that took Europe in the 1890s specifically kind of was an outbreak almost like a virus the way that it spread uh, because there weren't no, none of these alliances that led up were transparent that was kind of a big issue so I was taught a lot about um, secret alliances that happened between nations that while that was bad there was good and bad beyond the, to both of that because the secret alliances did prevent a lot of war like that feudalistic type of uh bartering system they had between making secret alliance with this and this you weren't allowed to really go off and attack anybody without fear that so they might have a secret um big player right in in their back pocket yeah um so, so i mean did... that
0: that certainly happened in the morocco crisis right yeah when like the the french and the british were had a secret treaty over morocco where france got to have a free hand in morocco but officially both uh, officially morocco was neutral
1: right and and specifically that actually that intervention that you know that behind that whole crisis that was actually they thought the germans thought that that was going to that crisis was going to weaken the alliance between france and england it backfired it actually strengthened the alliance between france and england better than they had had before which is unfortunate for germany because they could have what they should have done um and uh I was I was kind of uh, <laughs> I was kind of taught this from you know from a German perspective as as growing up uh, that it would have been better to obviously play England and France against each other and use their historical um you know ad- adversary or adversarial communications against it um, but obviously that solidified the Marco crisis solidified that that union between France and England to be to be one but um, so as far as the uh, the lead up kind of thing was going is that Serbia was obviously seen as a satellite state. Um, of Russia at the time by most people in the Balkans because it was their only ally the only ally that Russia had um, in that whole region of the world was Serbia
0: and so they yeah, had because the Russian and the Russians were everyone thought was were the Russians were trying to make a play for the Straits
1: right well and then and, and they actually were that was a major thing because you know that they they had their if we're gonna get off into an economic tangent real quick again this is certain things that I was I was taught or whatever is that their largest amount of wheat exports went through the Dardanelles. So And their biggest fear was that an alliance between the Ottoman Empire and Germany was going to give Germany uh, de facto, not necessarily de jure, but de facto rule over the Dardanelles Straits, which could effectively choke out Russia, Mm -hmm. Um, which is why they really went for that uh, Triple Entente alliance with France and England, right? Because if they did, but this also gets to the concept of Ankreisung, which is the encirclement that Germany feared between having France on one side and Russia on the other. Um, and these were also all these parts of these interconnecting uh, things, these alliances that led up to the, to the First World Wars of, of who did what and where, why all these alliances came
0: into being. Right. right. All- so, so you've got – I mean the end state is Germany, Austria teamed up, France, Russia, England teamed up. Right. And then Serbia as Russian vassal state yeah. um, unofficially aligned. And then Italy question mark Turkey question mark Right, and but there were a couple other arrangements that led up to that. There was the um, the the, the, the was the Triple Alliance of yeah. There that, was that was Germany. The Triple Alliance was Germany, Austria, and um,
1: Ottoman Empire. I think was no the no, third, no no no, it was, no it sorry. Was, it
0: was Italy, and before they actually even before that's right. That, it was Italy, but then, they had the uh, oh, I forget, it was the the reintegration treaty, which was I keep forgetting because Italy like betrayed them on that Triple yeah. Alliance thing. So and but, before that they had France. There was the the three kings alliance of of the kaiser and the emperor of austria and and the czar right that was was a briefly thing and i think it was the eight, late 1880s but yeah they, they kept they kept shifting these around and because uh,
1: the 1890s was the one that really solidified a lot of the what came to being the the war alliances prior <laughs> so to that, like the
0: like- the argument kind of comes the the typical argument about the war guilt question comes down to all right well who was doing the most backstabbing and who mobilized first who declared war first uh who shot who and i mean my takeaway on this is that that it's kind of irrelevant um and that's not just and one could then draw the conclusion well therefore it was just a structural problem and everybody was sort of at fault right and I, i'm sympathetic to that argument but i would say that the fundamental problem between austria Germany-Austria on one hand and the Triple Entente on the other hand was that the the assassination in Sarajevo caused like a a a crisis that was fundamentally misunderstood or not misunderstood willfully manipulated by the British and this is (laughs) basically what Raymer argues because what happened in Sarajevo was you had a, a a Serbian shoots the Archduke. Right, well, actually he's a Bosnian. Oh, so, okay, yeah. but an ethnic Serb. Yeah, well, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that, was the whole, that
1: was the whole reason for the whole problem in the first place, it's because the annexation of Bosnia by the Austro-Hungarian and, Empire. And, and Austria yada,
0: yada, yada. rightfully goes to Serbia and says, all right, here's our demands. Now, really, I mean, it, the, the fundamental misunderstanding is Because it was overstated by a, the is, black hands, that's true. It, the fundamental misunderstanding is one of honor. Mm. Like Austria is approaching this from a position of uh, from uh, a perspective of honor. If you kill the heir to the throne uh, of a of an empire whose ruler has been on the throne for fifty years, I think at that point sixty years. Oh, when no, uh, oh, Franz Joseph, the first one, he, he had been
1: it, it, he was in his eighties when that happened. Yeah. so he had been uh, since ni- the eighteen forties. I think had been on the throne.
0: Well, I mean, didn't he come to the throne at like twenty years? Yeah, he was young. So he had been on the throne at least sixty or so years. It'd it had been a long time. And, and this was the one. This was the one direct successor, at, he, and his wife and unborn child who were killed, and because uh, of a multicultural so, empire. So people know that France chose the Archduke Franz uh, Ferdinand's
1: uh, father had a, was supposed to be the heir to the actual throne, um, not the other. You know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. Well, no, no. So like, you had you had the the, the current the current uh, king right and then you had um Ferdinand was was the heir but he, he, well his he wasn't supposed to be the heir his father was supposed to be the heir and he abdicated his position
0: and so it went to his son I, I didn't I forgot about that yeah. I, I remember hearing that in high school yeah but the, the you learned that in high school I, I think I, did. <laughs> I, I I do remember this from my high school history class um but the fundamental problem is you've got Austria which has been grievously wronged and mm-hmm. in any normal like 19th century or earlier interpretation should just be able to declare war right like the fact that they even had to, that they even sent an ultimatum is almost insane you right. can't just kill i mean it's not because you're not just killing it wouldn't be like killing i don't know the fucking prince harry or something right like it doesn't matter if you if somebody killed prince harry there would be no political fallout from that really there would be though huge political fallout if you kill the heir of the austro-hungarian empire because there's no success there's no successor other than him there's no plausible successor, and there's no
1: successor after him either because his wife sophia was a bohemian non-aristocrat and their children were deemed by the austro-hungarian empire as not being eligible for the throne
0: and also the whole that Austria Hungary was was multicultural and was was sort of teetering anyway. Right. Well, it's, uh, and
1: not to get on a tangent by that, but Franz Ferdinand was the only his when he would have taken taken power over it. He actually had ideas while he was pretty hardcore. You know, he called Serbs pigs and all these other fun things or whatever. He actually had the notion of creating a a triple crown empire out of Austria Hungary, and then a third element would have been a pan Slavic. Uh, uh, key to that while they were annexing everything else down in the south yeah I don't, that, that wouldn't have worked. But. i don't think so either <laughs> okay <laughs> but that was that was that was talked about like that was kind of in his plans which i don't understand like obviously but they also had that concept where where dwells a serb is serbia which was a fear to most europeans at the time oh, but too. i mean
0: but looking at the assassination from austria's point of view uh you know, Serbia can say, "Well, that wasn't uh, that wasn't one of our operatives. That we, we he wasn't under our orders. There was no connection of Which him is to totally untrue. <laughs> well, which is <laughs> the black, debatable. But true, yeah. what was going on is in all, in Serbia you had a government that didn't really have control of the whole country. That's true. And yeah. there were uh, there were elements, uh, including and we can you know expand on this in a second. But there were elements like the uh, the hundred officers who had assassinated the previous king Alexander the First who weren't part of the government you want to tell d- the people a little bit about that de, de, de facto <laughs> were part of the government <laughs> because everybody in the government was afraid of these people right and there were you know, the secret societies like the the black hand um the other one that um they like three does the right? uh, narodna odbrana uh, yes, po- some... popular defense and that uh, there were all there were several secret societies and like people who wanted to stitch together a greater Serbia from pieces of Bosnia and pieces of Macedonia. Oh, excuse me, North Macedonia. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> And so the Serbian government didn't really have control of its own country. Now this you know, one is reminded of like the Taliban or something. You could say, well, I mean, if you, well, no, no, I legitimately,
1: I don't think that's, a, I don't think that's a bad you, analogy. You could
0: say, yeah, you, if somebody is using your country as a base to go do terrorism, uh, and, Arguably, killing the Archduke is way worse than 9-11. I mean, at least from a perspective of political stability. At the stability. time, yeah, definitely Political was. stability, it right. matters more. Because, uh, yeah, at, at again,
1: going back to the concept that Ferdinand had no heirs or anything else like that, or, or any legitimate heirs, like you had a legitimate void ready to happen on a dual monarchical
0: empire that was central to Europe's entire The whole system. Organization. Yeah, like... And so the fact, so the the Austrians presented the ultimatum, the ultimatum was extremely demanding, we all know, but the ultimatum was, you need to do all these things, and we're going to send officers to ensure that these things are done, that we find the perpetrators, that we ensure that this never happens again. Apparently they rounded up like 5,000 or so Serbs after that happened. And And most of them were executed when the war started. (laughs) And and we're going to do this, and if you don't agree, then it's war, which is like, I don't know. From the perspective of honor, this just seems like the totally rational thing to do, and the only thing it's, you really can it's do. It's very civil.
1: It's extremely civil. The way that they handled that is is a normal a normal situation would have been just like who cares about ultimatums? Just go in there, right? As but the fact that they even went at it in a diplomatic way after this occurred shows immense restraint on the Austrian government. Yeah, uh, you know it's you
0: even though it only took a month for the war to break out after that still you know i i do kind of want to talk about or just sort of compare this to how this has gone on since then because i I sort of i think since the 19th century in europe and in the west you've had this degrading of honor culture between countries which you know like you would think would lead to more stability because (laughs) in a sense like just because you Slap a diplomat across the face doesn't mean that there has to be a world war, right? Yeah. Um, nowadays, if you slapped a diplomat across the face, uh, you, there would be some stupid gay sanctions, or not even it would probably be like, yeah. oh, well, we'll have a, a bigger gay parade or something. You, I, I don't you know. Like, a, you I don't box, know how you box, retaliate piece, for that nowadays.
1: It. Yeah. The CNN hit piece or Fox hit piece. But on the <laughs> other
0: hand, when you have that honor culture like you did in the past, if you slap, no, you don't slap diplomats. Right. That's <laughs> that's the that's the because the point. there's <laughs> there's there's we are at there's there's two levels. There's civil and peaceful. And then there's war. Right. (laughs) You pick one.
1: (laughs) It's very now. It's
0: like, well, we might be friends. We might be frenemies. We might be kind of at war. We might be doing sanctions. We might. We're always backstabbing. Well, then everything becomes almost a quasi cold war at that point too. It's you know of of who's doing what.
1: It's almost war. The 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 the, I almost wish we'd go back to the the underground thing of, of alliances of nations because this this open alliances of nation thing is just they're doing the same thing. It's just in the open and it makes it so much more tedious. I'd say.
0: Um. Yeah. Indeed. But um. Uh, so, uh, going back to to Raymer here, and specifically what he says about like what how World War One happened, and and he brings up the point that in a lot of its dealings, Germany was just too nice leading up to World War One. Yes. Like the Morocco crisis, he talks about. Uh, Germany was just. It should have been firmer and more aggressive because the problem with Germany being too nice uh, and not being more aggressive in some of its foreign policy made the other powers sort of think that Germany was a pushover and that they could aggress on Germany and Germany wouldn't retaliate. Right. Um, And so like like they were approaching that breaking point and they didn't know the other powers didn't know because Germany hadn't shown its displeasure. Right.
1: And that was the same thing, honestly, with the, the Ottomans, because obviously with the, the breakdown in, in the Balkans, just like to, to go off on that, because that, that does kind of piggyback yeah. on the, the Moroccan crisis as far as uh, the breakdown and lead up to this, as, as far as the Ottoman Empire is concerned, right? So you had this, this huge breakdown, obviously, in, in the late 1800s, the Balkan um, revolutions and everything else like that, that really weakened the Ottoman Empire. But the Morocco crisis specifically showed uh, that the Ottomans were just handing out land it seemed and that was what caused Italy to invade Libya at the time right that was like a big thing and they this is like to give Italians the credit where credit's due for once in their military history or whatever they were able to take all of Libya from the Ottoman Empire in less than a month like that's impressive, you know, for for them right. <laughs> at, the t- at the time. Yeah. You know, it's where, they're no longer Rome, unfortunately, at the time. But the fact that they went back into Libya and took that within less than a month showed how weak the Ottoman Empire was at the time, which again scared russia because when italy took libya in less than a month they were really honestly worried that the fall of the ottoman empire would take such a turn that germany would in fact get their hands on the dardanelles and be able to choke them out going back to to that alliance well, they, element
0: yeah and the british were, which is
1: why they went to the french
0: well the british were also afraid of the german uh baghdad berlin railway proposal oh, oh yes uh, and Raymer brings this up to say like well what's the big deal guys like we just wanted to have trade uh with with the uh, near east like we weren't right. trying to conquer india like calm down right yeah or all of africa for that matter you know but the thing is
1: they could that would have been really great for their fuel because again Germany not having the overseas or, or specifically the Middle Eastern uh, territories that England and, and France did, didn't have access to petroleum products as you know readily available as, as the other two powers did. The train line would have negated that. It would have almost been Nord Stream 1 before it even started, right, kind of thing. Long, long before that, they could have just land shipped all of that petroleum in there as compared to having to utilize a navy that they didn't technically have at the time, yeah, you petroleum
0: know, wasn't that. I mean, I don't know how big of a deal petroleum would have been in the first. World it War. wasn't huge yet, but yeah. it was becoming a commodity. It was becoming, yeah, I mean, because you had you had the main petroleum. I think back then was was that um, Azerbaijan, right? I, I'm
1: not sure if that was the major well, one or not. I that's... think that
0: was the main place where you got oil. Was was the Caucasus? What a after, tragic
1: after... place to have an economic
0: powerhouse. Yeah, <laughs> like... well, it was after. I mean, after they like started developing oil in Pennsylvania and stuff, like Azerbaijan, um, Baku. Became the next big like oil. That makes sense. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how much of a strategic concern oil was, but definitely the straits were, yeah. were concerned. But the
1: thing is, is that it, not that it was in and of itself a commodity, like or that it was a necessity as a commodity itself. It was more, it was, it was an imperial commodity. You weren't really an empire unless you had this economic commodity coming in, or at least some control over the trade of this economic powerhouse that was emerging. And it was kind of one of those things. It, it comes back down to like what the with the spices and those trades were like in the 1700s and control of 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 cinnamon right was as powerful then as it was you know now Mm -hmm. the control of oil um and for why because you want your food to taste good like it some crazy arbitrary reasons like that cause entire wars right
0: yeah um so he also brings up, you, you already said, Ein Song, the yeah. encirclement of Germany, and the alliance system did that, right? Uh, well,
1: yeah, and that, again, the, the fall of Libya and the weakening of the Ottoman Empire caused the fear of Russia uh, to lose the Dardanelles or lose access to the Dardanelles to then make that alliance with France, causing that encirclement element, which I mean, was a... Bismarck's nightmare. <laughs> and He wasn't in power at the time. so.
0: When in, and going into that, too, was the issue of the British fleet, uh, the British-controlled you know obviously we're the we're the strongest uh, naval power and uh In the history of mankind and they they control bismarck had always wanted to not have a fight with britain and so he'd never emphasized the navy and tried to keep the navy small and had made deals with russia and
1: that was again policy carrying back
0: from frederick the great you know yeah like- yeah it was policy uh coming from frederick the great um but Britain also did, it, it, well, just before World War I, um, Britain started making deals with Norway uh, so that they could have more naval bases just north of, of Germany and, and be able to control the North Sea better. Uh, but they were doing that in response to Kaiser Wilhelm II, who started building up the german navy because he was an anglophile and wanted to have his own navy yeah they, they loved
1: was- the concept of the of the, of the of the of the foreign of the you know like foreign colonies like that was but that's also a reason why kaiser wilhelm decided to fire Bismarck because it was he was in opposition to these types of things as far as a chancellor is concerned and so throughout the 1890s and stuff you had this massive change of uh german military um focus right and uh i mentioned this uh, obviously earlier before whatever but they they had spent one-third of their military budget on creating a navy out of nothing. And that ensured that they weren't able to fund a land conflict on two fronts in an effective way. And, again, they didn't do anything with this navy because they didn't have years when, and When years was and that those... that they... The, they spent that much money, I think it was... It was sometime in the early 1900s. It wasn't in the 1890s yet. they'd obviously decided to do these types of things by then, but it didn't take, it took them about another 10, 15 years.
0: So one of the things that, that Raymer mentioned was that uh, I think it was he said in 1913 they had an argument in the German General Staff, and Ludendorff wanted uh, he wanted to raise three more corps for the German army. Right. and he got shot down on that which because they can't afford it because they just spend all this money on stupid w- boats they can't w- use <laughs> would have yeah would have probably made the difference i mean um have you read uh did you ever read tuchman's book barbara tuchman um guns of august
1: yes 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 yes
0: remember she mentions during the attack uh into france in 1914 that the germans had to pull two corps out of the line to go cover east prussia because everybody was freaking out about their estates being ravaged by the russians yes uh, well, yeah, if you'd had those three extra cores, you would have had two have... on the eastern front and one standby. Yeah, one one extra and you could have maintained the same frontage and, you know, still fully encircled Paris. Right. And the front, the push
1: would have would have not failed <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> Um, Battle of the Marne wouldn't have happened, to any of this other stuff. He would have been able to just bulldoze and steamroll. They, yeah. It would have been the same thing as a as a as a blitzkrieg at that point in time. But again, the slowing down of the, the pulling of manpower and everything else, and Germany was far more advanced than 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 France was at the time with rail lines
0: and everything. They had still maintained that that mentality,
1: you know, beyond. That, but, and
0: that was that was, you know, the the uh, time with which it took mobilization to happen. Germany actually mobili- gave the mobilization orders after France and Russia dead so yeah. you know it's kind of people say well germany still like attacked first it's like well they mobilized second like well that's just because they're faster at mobilizing well and Re- uh, raymer says this what like, is that, well, when what you, does that tell you like, like sorry we're better literally but, uh sorry we're faster on the draw like that's not our fault that we shot you just because we got the gun out faster right well, you started getting the gun out first dude
1: yeah. <laughs> seriously you start unholstering your weapon i'm just going to draw on fire so you know that Yeah, no, it's ridiculous that that would be the blame for that kind of a thing. And to be fair, I, I, it's, it's not. That's a nonsensical argument, in my opinion, because it's like if you're already mobilizing your armies to go to war with this other country, like you, you are doing this. You are clearly doing this as an aggressive uh, action. Yeah. So I, I couldn't. I. That's. We could go on for days about how nonsensical the claims are about who is guilty and who is not guilty, specifically the concept of shoving all that guilt onto germany yeah
0: i mean we shouldn't or
1: not even like what i don't get is why would they shove it onto germany and not austria hungary considering that's like (laughs) like i don't never understood that as the one thing i never understood is why was germany far more guilty than austria Well, some
0: of the more recent people have tried have have blamed austria a lot too um like that that watson guy with with ring of steel he blames austria pretty hard um, or Russia for that matter. I've
1: realized that Russia's only ally in the whole area of that was Serbia, and they had to be diehard loyal to them. But they're the ones who declared war first, right? Like Russia declares, I mean, obviously we can say that, you know, Austria declared war on Serbia, but what is what is Serbia? Serbia is not a major empire. It's not a player in the European theater at all. It's just It just is there for that you know, matter. It's a brand new country that had just won its independence from the Ottoman Empire. It had only been in existence for not too very long. And the fact that, yeah, sure, Austria-Hungary decided to go to war with them, but they had legitimate reasons and cause to do so. Annexing Bosnia and Herzegovina was a totally legal action, as viewed by the League of Nations and everyone the hell else. Well, later. Oh Well, fair. But it was, still, it was still done within their sphere of, of influence. Like, no one was protesting it. The French weren't protesting the annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, neither were the British or anyone. Even the Russians didn't protest that. The only ones that were protesting it were the Serbs. Because they were neighboring it, and they they were upset because they lost their 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 port area, their 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 chance to obtain a port area through utilizing ethnic Serbs that lived in Bosnia Herzegovina to annex that land for themselves and become a a a player in that area.
0: Yeah. Well, while we're talking about the Serbs, I don't want to go too hard (laughs) on our Serbian friends. Right. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Serbia in the like 1890s, 1900s was absolutely insane
1: <laughs> please tell i mean like you, uh, do, you read do. about the byzantine
0: empire or something you think wow there's like so many murders and like elaborate tortures and, and weird plots going on here mm. i can't keep track of them all delicious Serbia <laughs> was absolutely just bonkers <laughs> I, I the one I, I read one chapter out of the, the christopher clark book mm. and he and he, he talks all about serbia and explains like in detail serbia's uh, decades before the before 1914 they'd had a king alexander the first who had been put on the throne by his father at 12 under a regency in the 1880s i think and the regency lasted four years and then the father uh retired to a divorce he divorced the queen and like moved to a monastery <laughs> for, I, what? <laughs> but still, or uh, I don't know if it was he was in a monastery. He was somewhere, and he was still running the country though through his teenage son, uh, and the mom who was divorced from him was also still manipulating the son to run the country. So the father got the son to uh, Alexander the uh, First to throw out the Regents who he himself had installed. Mind yeah, you. like what? <laughs> like, <laughs> inviting them over to dinner and during the toast, announcing that they're all under arrest and throwing them out. Uh, <laughs> oh god It's so outrageous it's just such savagery and then yeah uh, just, and then just he, another day in the balkans he, he ran the country i mean it was it was notionally a constitutional monarchy and there was a constitution and stuff and but rather than just proclaiming himself absolute dictator or something like that he still pretended to follow the rules but broke them in the most that absurd always makes possible, it worse <laughs> which really just pisses people off right when you have a constitution either just throw out the constitution just be honest with people right or rule according to the constitution it's the same thing
1: with laws with fines it's only
0: there to 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 keep down the lower classes don't do the sort of stuff that he did where like he would uh ban suspend the constitution for 45 minutes (laughs) in the middle of the night sign a bunch of new laws and then reinstate the constitution <laughs> like, what <laughs> that's outrageous um and then he also he he managed so he managed to piss a lot of people off doing this stuff yeah, I can and imagine pissed, so. especially the military yep and then he uh he married a woman i forget her name she was she was 10 years his senior she was a nobody um she had allegedly slept with everybody in serbia uh, one of the king, one of Alexander's ministers, came, said to him in court, uh, "Your Majesty, but you, but I mean, Your Majesty, you can't marry her. Everyone's slept with her." I've slept with her. <laughs> for which he, he got slapped across the face. Well, right, yeah. And then obviously joined the conspiracy to kill the king. Well, you know, you're going to do that. And you're just like, man, I really told him not to do this. <laughs> I just, I really, I was, for your own good. Yes, sir. Like, you don't want to do this. It's like, you could have any woman in Europe, basically, for all intents and purposes, you could your, have any woman in yeah, Europe. your aristocracy, your royalty of some you kind. You could get some, some. Pick of the litter like gorgeous maybe yeah. a
1: Swedish princess or something whatever like, you want it
0: doesn't matter and no I have to marry this woman 10 years my senior who's a raging whore take notes from this Macron. I, it doesn't make any sense like, yeah Macron needs to take notes on on this history yeah Macron it was exactly it was Macron <laughs> yeah it was it Macron. was the Balkan Macron <laughs> <laughs> Macronovich. <laughs> uh, so yeah there was then there was a, so the officers in the military just couldn't take this anymore yeah 150 or 100 of them got together and formed a conspiracy to kill him and then know like an orgy of bloodlust and savagery stormed the <laughs> castle arrested the guards blew off the the doors to the royal bedchamber with dynamite i don't know unnecessarily big, big i'm dramatic, sure i guess yeah. <laughs> and then we couldn't find the king he was hiding <laughs> him and the and, and his wife were hiding for like two hours in a uh, passageway somewhere So the conspirators, like, found a servant and at gunpoint, like, made him walk around crying out for the king. Your majesty! (laughs) (laughs) uh, The
1: assailants are gone! Come out here, sir! (laughs) I
0: feel kind of sick laughing about this, but... uh, (laughs) I mean, it's it's one of those things,
1: man, like... And, uh, when, yeah. you, when you get a good when you get a good murder on a despot it just feels right <laughs> Well know? I mean it's wrecked don't get me wrong
0: but yeah uh, then then uh, they, they finally found him and he he came out of the passageway and then they they blew him away yeah and then like bayoneted the body and like chop, chopped <laughs> God, off the fingers it's and, brutal like, yeah it was it was like just there's blood everywhere yeah and then the government the existing government just sort of had to deal with it. It was kind of well, like. What are you going to do? Like, when yeah, your king just gets, like, dismembered. It was kind of like, I guess, imagine it was like what the situation in Rome was after Caesar was murdered. Oh, yeah. It's like, like, oh, uh. the entire aristocracy or military class just killed somebody, you know, a powerful, the most powerful guy in the country. Well, what are they going to do to me? What are we going to, yeah, we can't, what are we going to do about this? And so the Serbian government was, for years after that, just every minister was, like, afraid of. This clique of officers who wasn't in any official capacity running the country, but still were like hanging out and drinking beer, and at any time might like, just decide to go kill you. Right. Apparently. Yeah. I mean, so- I. I it's I, a
1: marionette government at that point everything's run by the strings of those guys if they, if they want it it happens if they don't want it you obviously do what you what they want otherwise you're gonna get black-handed yeah so like
0: if i were austria you know so fast forwarding to and they to- trained
1: guerrillas too that were were specifically for these types of things again princip the guy who shot ferdinand was was one of these black hand militants you know so like what well, they have like they they so yeah uh, it wasn't a, the
0: government probably, if the government had wanted to they probably would have not allowed this to exist because the government governments generally want to have control over their countries and not have like weird terrorist organizations just plotting to kill uh yeah statesmen of other countries right (laughs) like
1: even your own i guess it was the Balkans. but if i were if
0: i were austria i mean there's one of two things you can do after after the assassination you either go to this country serbia that's a total shit show and you say okay look uh we are either setting up we're we're either going to throw out your government and put this officer clique on the throne or we're going to put them in charge because they're really the government here right we're going to put the, we're going to make the government correspond to the people that have power or we're going to help you liquidate everybody who isn't actually part of the government but who's wielding power so that you can act like a normal state yeah um that would have been a reasonable like i i think way of approaching it yeah um but i mean On the other hand, what Austria did in a way was more restrained. They were like, look, just get rid of these people. We'll let you do it. We just want to oversee it. Yeah. Uh, And if you don't do that, we have to go to war with you because that's just what honor dictates. Yeah. And the thing is, Serbia
1: was also fearful, though, that whenever Bosnia-Herzegovina was um, annexed by Austria, that the Austrians would utilize it as a jumping ground for invasion into Serbia. They were worried that they were going to become annexed to the next nation into the Austro-Hungarian Empire.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah,
1: that was a major thing for them. Not only were they upset that they lost any ability for them to have port access to the the seas out there next to Italy, Uh um, by Croatia and all that other stuff, they were were honestly convinced that the Austrians were probably going to do something along these lines. So I would imagine that that type of sentiment kind of drummed up enough fear to where you were able to have recruits that were willing to just go and, Blast the Archduke on like you know like on a Sunday afternoon on a bridge right like in broad daylight and his wife yeah like and on top of that they had they had already undergone one attempt on their life earlier that day and they didn't increase their their um their defenses so the Austrian the Austrians just kind of sent him down there like he was just like no I'm going or whatever and he he arrived a it day is early. kind of a
0: big dick move or he it's did. a very aggressive move to just.
1: He had a motorcade. He had, like, no guard. He had, like, a couple of guards on hand. That was it. And they weren't really even pulling guard duty because, principally, when they pulled— they were like, Lancers or
0: something, weren't they? They were, were Hussars? Yeah, there was just... nothing.
1: They were, like—they weren't, like—it wasn't like they had, like, an actual, you know, secret service or something like our president has or anything else like that. He, like, you know, because, like, you know, when you see our president going places, there's, like, uh, a, a bunch of, you know, secret service guys around him. They're always on high alert, right? They're always get yeah, a, a specific, you know— uh d- d- distance they keep from from the president and everything else you know there's there's a cordon a con, yeah, yeah. cordon sanitaire he didn't have any of this not one bit and so he was driving around earlier that day they were going to go to some place and some other group of black hand dudes made an attempt on his life by throwing a, they threw a bomb at his car and they missed and hit the it bounced off the hood and then exploded and hurt two
0: of the guards then they got taken off to the hospital
1: and then the motorcade just kept going
0: like but they that's, didn't even, but that's that it makes sense though, like this is the mentality of the European elite that we used to have, yeah, which was that they were noble and that they weren't sissies,
1: yeah. But they went, and they had the speeches, right? And, they...
0: and because it's such a, it's such a alpha move to just go out there and be like, oh, you tried to kill me. (laughs) Ha ha. I'm going to go have lunch.
1: Well, right. And and now I don't disagree. That is an alpha move. The thing is, though, is once one attempt on your life happens, right, the risk
0: assessment was
1: right. And maybe they kept blowing it off. The guys they had down there were telling him they tried to cancel the whole trip. The trip was supposed to be canceled. And Ferdinand was like, yeah, no, I'm doing this. And then not only was he doing this, he showed up a day early. Right, like he's he's really doing this, and so um, there was a, a discussion that was had between uh, the the queen uh, heiress at the time, uh, Sophia, right, mm-hmm. like Ferdinand's wife, um, and their uh, I guess their coordinator or whatever down in in, um, in Bosnia, and she said something along the lines of. Um, You know, we have only ever seen just the greatest thing since we've been down here. Every serve down to the last person has been so nice and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, well, I hope I can say that to you tomorrow night. Um, It's a total foreshadowing of what actually happened because he didn't get to say that to her the next night. They were dead. Um, So they, like, you know, the bomb goes off or whatever, or like the attempt on their life happens um, earlier during the, during the, um, the tour, or whatever, the bomb goes off, the two guys get injured, and they go off, and they have their speeches, or whatever, and then afterwards, uh, they changed the route, so they were supposed to go somewhere else, but he, uh, Ferdinand wanted to go to the hospital, uh, to go visit the two guys that were injured, which, you know, cool move, that's a you know, pretty, a pretty royal move to make, uh, to go visit your men that are, that are injured, rather than doing your, whatever tour you're gonna do, um, but they didn't they didn't tell anybody about their new route planning and anything else like that. It was all all strange and screwed up. Uh, but somehow the Black Hand got the word, obviously, because they, they run everything, right? And so they put guys, they put assassins on every bridge leading out of the city of Sarajevo. Every single bridge had assassins on it. And so one of the bridges... Figuring
0: that somebody was not going to puss out. Right, exactly. One person was going to...
1: Yeah, at least one guy. Most guys are going to be bin. like,
0: ah, I can't do it.
1: He No, someone did the bit, right? And so Princip was was hanging out at this one bridge, right? And he honestly didn't think, this is like this is a small tidbit of history here. Princip actually didn't think, this is like information that came later. I don't know how accurate this is, but this is what's generally uh, known as to be true. He didn't think that his bridge was going to get crossed by the Archduke. Because, again, the Archduke had a planned route. And the planned route was you know elsewhere. Uh-huh. And so Princip was like, I'm going to get a sandwich. And so he actually goes off and leaves his post for a second. This is so... Slavic, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So he goes off to get a sandwich while this is happening. And just by chance, the Archduke's car breaks down right where he's at like right in front of him. They parked the car right there in front of him and within point-blank range, basically. I think he was maybe three or four feet away from the car itself, opens up, fires two shots, kills Sophia instantly, Uh, and then the second bullet obviously hits Ferdinand, and the last words out of Ferdinand's mouth were, uh, "Sophia, please don't die for the sake of our children. Um, And I'm pretty sure what that means is that as soon, because they're gonna lose all their titles, clearly. They weren't considered to be uh, royalty or aristocracy by the Austrians whatsoever, so, deposition of, the, of their whole line was about to the occur it had not one of them survived they both died obviously you yeah, know i uh, and
0: that started the war <laughs> yeah you know i actually saw that car it's in the um it's in the war museum in vienna which is
1: amazing would, yeah. i'm surprised they still have the it and
0: know and it's it's cool if you go in there it's it's in this like back room you kind of have to look for it um they don't like have it front and center or anything it's like all the cool military shit they have it's they just sort of Oh yeah! By the way, this is like the famous car, right? <laughs> and then they also have his bloody uniform too. So cool! Honestly. Yeah, just like bullet holes, crusty blood on it. It's in a case. You can you can see it.
1: That's intense. That was the the move of the Black Hand Princip. I'm pretty sure they arrested Princip. I'm pretty sure they got him. Uh, I don't know how they couldn't. His guards were right there, and the dude was three feet away. There's no way they didn't just. No, they did. They, yeah, yeah, they arrested him. Yeah, so like that would have been a total oversight too. But yeah, so that was that was the total luck of the draw. But
0: so yeah, I mean like there's a lot of there's a lot of blame for serbia here there's a lot of blame for austria or maybe a little little bit of blame for austria maybe arguably but it's
1: from negligence absolutely yeah okay um i would i would blame austria 100 for negligence on that let's
0: let's zoom out here because most people approach this question from okay your country did this your country did that i mean we could say it was the russians uh, like we said, the Russians, the French, the Germans—whoever—there's there's arguments for all these things. Yeah. But when you look at it from the perspective of, okay, who's being more restrained and more honorable, and is only going to war when they're absolutely forced to, it's Germany and Austria. Right. And the two that got shackled with all the debt and,
1: and all the guilt.
0: And let's like, just a couple quotes here from Raymer. Uh, Raymer talking about he's talking about the Russians and, and how the Russians invaded Prussia yeah in 1914 battle of tannenberg all this yeah and he says uh what the russians are worried about uh seems to me that tannenberg uh lies on german soil uh and they must have come into it <laughs> sorry i'm like sight translating that yeah, but like, like it, it's, it's just yeah. he's very catty in a few places in his remarks it's kind of cool
1: <laughs> it's that was I was honestly surprised that the Russians didn't make a bigger push in in, uh, in Prussia at the time. Not not to get off on a tangent as far as like actual war is concerned, but that was one thing I was always surprised at as as a, even as a kid learning about this is that it was the one major seat of power that they had legitimate geographical access to in a quick way. They couldn't just storm over the Carpathians and get to Vienna real quick, right? But mm-hmm. they did have almost; they were like right up against Königsberg.
0: Well, that's what. They, well, they were going. Well, they were going for Berlin, um, which
1: is foolish. Like they should have. They. Should, well, I mean, it, not it, necessarily it isn't foolish in
0: a way because There's, they knew they knew that the Germans were gonna. They they had a pretty good reason to believe that the Germans were gonna attack France. They also the French had the French General Staff and the Russian General Staff, staff had been in communication and the french had told the russians look we really need you to attack with whatever you've got after two weeks from mobilization um the russians had said it was going to take six weeks to mobilize and the french said we don't care just hit them with anything after two weeks because they needed the distraction right they needed a distraction and it worked um yeah it it worked for the french it didn't work out for the russians no (laughs) they, they had two armies massacred and uh if you the best book on that most of, most of what I know about that is just from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's 1914. Oh yeah, which is a really good book if you haven't uh, if you've ever I have read it. I've read a few things by Solzhenitsyn, but I'm not. I don't. August I don't think 1914 I have that one. is a really exciting, like, fun one. Like Gulag Archipelago, I've read some of, and it's. I it's like super very, Soviet and depressing. It, yeah, it's very interesting. Just people getting like tortured. So raw. 1914 is a little bit more readable because it's. Uh, it's just historical, and it, it shows both sides. It talks about the Germans, talks about the Russians, and um, the the Tannenberg campaign. Because
1: that is that is a, a, an unfortunately neglected part of the First World War is the Russian the Russian uh, involvement prior to the revolution starting. You know, like obviously Tsar Nicholas's involvement in the in the conflict and everything else like that. Because at the, at that time, I think that was, in my opinion, that's the last time you had a real fully european conflict with russia included in it because again the aristocracy of russia at the time was european as compared to that we can get into that later
0: yeah we i mean if we we can have a whole yeah
1: before the major empires were i will say all about all russia
0: stuff. um it's i i, I find it, it people have this misperception well people have the correct perception that the bolshevik revolution was like jewish and of course it was right but they also that presupposes that pre-1917 Russia was European, and it it kind of, like, you're you're not wrong to say that it was, and, like, its its leadership was genetically European and stuff, but it was, like, Russia for 200 years, from Peter the Great to Nicholas II, was sort of LARPing as European.
1: That's also probably why they held on to the old-world European models that they had, specifically serfdom and stuff, which would have allowed for a large proletariat unrest,
0: yeah and, and and the Russian revolution like yes led by Jews horrible lots of people died but yeah. it also it kind of makes sense from the perspective of like ancient Russia like it it, it the Russians are very very egalitarian people yeah. they really like the brotherhood thing they really like they they don't like but that's kind uh, of the thing
1: about the jews is that it's while they they did foment a lot of that they still they were they took it they were harnessing like yeah. a
0: real a real feeling in the country.
1: right yeah was, that's how it usually goes though is that there's always that that spark that is original there and then it's just manipulated and taken control of by the the jewish elites yeah, or whatever, just, however they are
0: yeah we know. let's 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 go back on to yeah let's go back on to the the deeper causes of world war one ah good all right. so the the jews and the liberals
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right let's break into this uh now also sorry. let's define liberals because a liberal at the time had a
0: ton of different meanings compared to what it is now you know like- yes we're not i mean I, we're not we're not right-wingers we're uh we're national socialists we're above that <laughs> so I, well, this isn't like some butthurt conservative take on, on yeah. liberals when when well, we, we we have enough to say about the conservatives too <laughs> yeah we we got plenty to say about them uh raymer do, explicitly criticizes the the liberal parties in in germany mm-hmm. um in the reichstag and that that these it, spd he, being a big one he, he says specifically that the the allies like measured german power by how many liberal uh, representatives that were in the parliament in the <laughs> at any given time mm. was sort of their like just ongoing gauge of German power. All right, like, so lots that. of liberals <laughs> alright time to attack. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of liberals who better back off. Huh, I wonder if that model uh, can be applied now. <laughs> you know
1: for other nations is probably what they're doing. Hmm. Um, but yeah. yeah. So the, the liberal elements of it too. So again back then also liberal meant mostly anything that wasn't part of again like liberal was, from the time of, of, of liberalism's creation in the early 1800s and whatnot, um, the constant of, of being, like, if you were a Republican, you were essentially a liberal, for the most part, back in the day, right? Like, an actual Republican. Somebody who believed in a republic, right? Yeah. Not what we have today, which everybody's like, you have a yeah, Republicans a you In Democrats Europe, well.
0: liberal, a hundred years ago meant person who isn't a monarchist pretty much
1: essentially yeah that was kind of the deal is anything anybody that had but even then you kind of had the lines blurred and this is this is getting way off into a tangent about uh, about you know political alignments or whatever Um, you had that kind of division too with the enlightened absolutists where you still had liberal policies as far as uh, you know Governments are or governance is concerned within the nation um, but with very monarchal types of oversight right which is a Frederick the Great again is a good one and this this is actually good to get into the history of, of liberalism in Germany during the time of the first world war is the the kind of the start of it the birth of of, of the the merger between liberal policies for the population and um Almost uh, and very authoritarian. Actually, that's a, a better dynamic to say. Uh, very liberal policies for the people and very authoritarian policies for the for the for the government of the government, right? So you would have. Uh, they said even in Germany in in the early 1900s, with the only uh, parliament throughout all of Europe that you would actually see men in uniform with sabers still attached, right? So they had troops with because like, you had, most of the the German aristocracy was was you know of a, a Junker class, very militaristic. That was part of their culture. and always had been. Um, and that had gone obviously even back still beyond uh, Frederick and whatnot. But Frederick was really the the, the 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 catalyst to create a dichotomy within Germany, or I would not necessarily a negative concept of dichotomy. There just that there was a dichotomy between how things. Um, were were governed in a very authoritarian manner, but those even though that it was very authoritarian, the policies given out to the population was extremely liberal. Um, for as like how they were, its monetary policies, economic policies, these types of things were were very. Again, you had the um, workers' rights and everything else that was coming out of Germany before it was coming out of other nations, um, even back in the, during the monarchical periods. So you had this development. So Germany
0: looked more hardcore conservative monarchical but act- acted more liberal and progressive
1: Yeah, it's on the ground it did yeah which is also why is like the
0: best of everything it
1: was but that's al- but that's also why germany became a problem for france and england towards the early 20th century it's because they had again you look at economic output i've mentioned the steel earlier right germany's steel output was greater in 1914 was greater than france england and russia combined and also
0: th- their dye output yeah oh yeah which, I mean not to joke but which is important for your chemical industry
1: right no but it's true and that's where you get companies like Bayer and everything else that were originated from these time frames or whatever and, but they had other stuff their coal output was higher right like the the the, the um, I'm not quoting exact numbers here, but I think it was in 19 – about 1908, Germany's coal output was somewhere around um, 88 million tons or something. I know, hilarious. Uh, Always. Uh, It was somewhere in the 80s. It was 80-some million tons per annum, right, of output of coal. By the time 1914 rolled around, that had jumped up to 277 million tons per annum. Right. So the, the industrial output of Germany and then you had the population uh, shift was really big, too. So this was a major thing, again, with liberal policies uh, was the urbanization and industrialization of Germany. Um, you had a bunch of uh, you had about I think it was only one third of the population by the time the, of the war outbreak was still agricultural and rural. And it had to switch from about two thirds were agricultural and rural at the, at the turn of the century. Right. Um, and you had a massive push um, of of. Of, of urban resettlement from from the agricultural. Um echelons right they would they would move a lot of the farmers into the cities um, which again bumped up their their industrial output and everything else specifically in places like the Ruhr and you know like the Ruhr Valley and all that other stuff for for steel and, and coal and all that fun stuff so you had a huge power like Germany was such a massive economic powerhouse because of this ability to have super authoritarian governance over liberal economic policies and liberal policies then um, the average worker in Germany had it way better than most uh, workers in, in Europe and this is even before World War too. we're not even talking about the national social this just frame. sounds
0: like if richard nixon could be dictator what he would do <laughs>
1: no gold standard <laughs> but yeah so like you had you had this this huge when economic you, when you, i mean
0: in all seriousness when you're yeah. a hardcore right-wing government you can implement like nice softy policies like yeah. founding the epa you can't well no you're not wrong it is it is you you're, it's totally
1: that way now, obviously in the united states there was a lot else working against those those policies right in that time frame um but as far as Germany was concerned, in the early 1900s, the lead up to the, the First World War, even the 1880s, 1890s, things, things, or whatever, you had a massive, massive industrial boom of Germany, specifically going around the 1890s. Um, and that was, again, what spurred the the desire for Wilhelm II, because, again, he saw his nation becoming massively industrialized, like the other Western powers were, and what is the next stage for uh, for a major industrial nation, and it is co- uh, colonialism, right, that's what he was desiring. So. Wilhelm II. uh, This is. He also came up. I don't know if he came up with the term, but it was really used a lot in his time. And I mentioned it earlier. um, Was the Drang nach Groza. Right, which is like this, this, this quest after the greater, you know, greater, yeah. uh, uh, whatever greatness would would be at, at the time. His his idea was colonialism, which is why he made the, the foolish idea of spending one third of the of the war budget on the on the navy. Right, that was, was the whole purpose of that. We're massively industrialized so he now.
0: You could keep Cameroon and like German South West Africa. South
1: out yeah. And then um, the other one was. Um,
0: the country now known as Tanzania.
1: No, no, that was that's um, Tanz- Tanzania. No, that, I know that's the other one. Oh, yeah, German, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: German East Africa.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. Tanzania was that, and then German West Africa is um,
0: Namibia. Yeah,
1: I like that name, by the way. <laughs> this seems so foreign and cool, but um, so. But that was also part of it with the economic boost, specifically the steel industry. The German steel industry was the biggest thing pushing Wilhelm II's idea that he could actually field a a naval power that was going to rival england itself that was his major and then you know obviously not putting blame on him but again there is blame to be placed throughout the western world when it comes to world war Two or world war one and uh kaiser was not necessarily you know out of out of his um out of his blame on this because there, there was no reason to go against England's naval power at this point. You had colonies. They weren't seeing you as a threat. Uh, I mean, there was. There was okay, give me a like, there well, was. What he
0: didn't know at the time, and what we all know now, is that whether or not Germany had a navy, England was going to cut off land – or cut off food to Europe in the event of a European war. Right. And actually, they did know that at the time because it's what happened in Napoleon's time with yeah. the, uh, the continental system uh and germany also had reason to be suspicious of england um well There's many- i guess after the war this was found out but basically it was found out after the war that the british had plans and these are not just contingency plans these are like planned plans to drop off like a hundred thousand troops in denmark or belgium in the event of a of a war between germany and france and you could say well uh it, 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 this was not an issue of like Belgian neutral. Belgium was officially neutral, but effectively it was in England's camp. And not only because that the, there had been numerous exchanges, and Raymer brings up some of these exchanges between the British general staff and the Belgian general staff about um, bringing making sure that Belgians Belgium's plans were integrated with France and Britain's plans. Uh but also they were a puppet because, state. I hate to say it. But... No, they were. I mean, also also because they uh belgian defenses were all lined up on the german border right it's like well you know you say you're neutral but your guns are facing this way clearly (laughs) so you know it's you know that is kind of an issue and i
1: I also think that they were also uh, before before that that knowledge came about though i'm pretty sure that one of the major policies and bismarck utilized this as well is that he counted on the danish naval power to be able to to protect those straits from England's power mm-hmm. because obviously the Danes didn't have as large of a naval force as England they had enough to be able to defend their own islands you know and whatnot their little yeah but I, I
0: I doubt they had enough to like pre- prevent a British landing well, because the British were talking about true. landing um well they had enough they had enough to they to wanted to land a keel to cut off uh I think there's a canal there isn't there I think so yeah. Yeah, they wanted to cut that off.
1: But the thing is though even if they did but that but that's the thing. That 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 was that was Germany's major thing is that they were they they couldn't be bested on land until they decided to take away their their land budget and put it towards a navy. And that was the whole the whole deal. And that was again that was every but every German military leaders ideas from the 1700s onwards were Focus on land combat because we actually have the advantage here. And so, even if the British were to land forces, if a sizable force in Denmark, right, and the Danes were able to put some hurt on them or whatever with their their navy, the the Germans would still be able to walk in there and just and do whatever they need to do, you know, uh, land land military uh-huh. wise, uh, and deal with that type of thing. So the the problem though with with Kaiser Wilhelm building the um, the navy like he did, and while the, and the dreadnoughts of, of the of the German navy outclassed the British dreadnoughts, like. Infinitely, they had they were way thicker in hulls no, really? and everything else. Oh yeah, they were no, way right. they were way more advanced, larger, more armaments, heavier, uh, uh, you know, armor plating, everything else. Like they were a, a vastly superior force. But it's hard to just magic
0: a fleet into existence. Right.
1: Then that's the know? problem, right? Like so that's the thing. He spent one third of his military You can build on great that.
0: boats, but you don't. You need the like men and the training and the experience. And
1: Germany never did. That's the thing, because they never focused on naval power whatsoever throughout their entirety of their history. They had some, you know what I mean? They they hadn't they had enough to obviously keep their ports, you know, in check and trade, and basic stuff. They didn't have the massive international naval force like England had, and they didn't have the training for it, they didn't have the manpower, that's another thing, they had to train up the manpower to do this. And so they just magicked a fleet into existence that had no troops whatsoever to, to put in them. So you had no sailors for these these boats, and they're just sitting in, in harbors most of the time. And that's the problem, the fleet sat in harbors, and I understand the tactic, That they had for setting the the boats in the harbor or the the ships in the harbors for most of the time is to defend the harbors from British blockade, sure. But at the same time, they had vastly superior ships. They didn't have the tactical knowledge to utilize these ships, and they could have actually done some serious damage to the British in the North Sea. They just didn't know they, how to they use them.
0: They never made the attempt. I mean, well, they, did, they didn't even know what to do with them. They did in 1916 a little bit with the Battle of Yutland, but they bailed on that. But the
1: thing, it took them two years into the war to develop these types of naval tactics that they should have been developing in the 1800s when they were building this fleet, and they they didn't. They just didn't have it. It was a massive. It was a, a, you know, excuse my French for the show. It was a massive fuck up. They should have just, again, as you said, built more. You know, land core to defend themselves as they always have done. Germany was never bested on on the on the ground. They still weren't even bested on the ground really in the First World War as far as, you know, legit battles were concerned as far as how they they conducted themselves. Um but, you know, they they took the gamble, they went the wrong way and they tried to play a naval game that they didn't have uh any any uh, you know, they didn't have a dog in that fight. And they tried to put one in there, and so it's like you have this veteran dog in the fight or whatever, and it just it's a pit bull, and it rips apart your chihuahua, and it just gets destroyed. And so most of those ships were actually still sitting there, untouched and unused in 1918. Well,
0: I, I mean, you, you do know they they did um, they did send they did try to do a, a sortie uh, out into the North Sea in 1918, which is like too late, uh, right? They and also tried. they. Yeah, I mean, you you can't go to your sailors and say, hey, guys, we're going to go attack the, the biggest, best fleet in the world, and the war's already over. We're just going to, like, get you all killed the, um, yeah. just to prove a point here. <laughs> like, come
1: <laughs> on, man. There was some mistake. That's, again, that's why... Germany just shouldn't screw around with navy stuff because it just didn't work for them. Like they made horrible mistakes doing so. And what they should have done is you cuz that's the thing. They the fleet they built
0: and they But you look, none of this is really relevant though because I mean it is relevant but well, like it they didn't it didn't they're not it's not their fault. Well right. Like, it's not their they fault. had treat they had the treat they scared with Churchill, though. They, they scared ha- Churchill. They scared Churchill into
1: almost getting Churchill to sign an agreement to have a non-aggressive pact with the navies between Germany and England to where Churchill was going to actually stop production of naval vessels in England if we Germany the, would agree they the to stop.
0: Two-thirds, the one-thirds, two-thirds rule all. Oh.
1: They tried to do those yeah. types of things, yeah, yeah. but they were, they were trying to, because the thing, and the, the reason why they noted this is because for England, a fleet was mandatory, right? Let's, let's jump away from Germany real quick and look at England real quick. They said that a fleet was absolutely mandatory to maintain its overseas holdings and everything else like that, and it was. For, and, but Churchill specifically said for Germany that it was a novelty. Right, they didn't need this naval power because they didn't have a vast overseas empire. They had mostly land-based stuff, and that's the thing. So they were worried that because Germany was becoming such an economic powerhouse, that they were now building novelty military, you know, uh, divisions and everything else, you know, fleets and all kinds of. Oh, stuff.
0: I mean, look, it's just it's this is free and fair competition. Germany is yeah. a <laughs> stronger country, and right, you know, if uh...
1: you know. Uh, No, I don't disagree. I think that's you know, that's, no, and you're right. You're, and, and, and all humor aside, it's totally correct. But that was the thing. So, England was actually frightened of Germany, and, but this goes to, to 1914. Germany's naval power was frightening enough to England itself that Churchill was willing to sign a a non-creation pact for more naval ships. Had Germany capitalized on that in 1914 and gone after England with its fleets, draw, and that's the thing, had Germany utilized its massive fleets that were vastly superior to England's fleets to attack England at the beginning of the war, it would have drawn Britain's navy away from its colonies during 1914 1915 and the rest or whatever weakening English influence throughout the rest of the world possibly Eng- like
0: weakening England's ability to to conduct the war I mean that's a daring thesis True. Uh, I mean they would have in so doing you know I don't I don't know a lot about the fleet question I mean I know the German fleet was was good but it was much smaller than England's fleet and England's fleet was dispersed around the world I mean yeah I guess they could have attacked they could have come out into the North Sea and tried to draw the English out um but they also might have just lost the whole fleet And then possibly, you know, I mean, it's not a huge loss like materially speaking it's not a shouldn't be a big deal but they might not have though because again if we're talking we're talking back in the day they didn't have they didn't have missiles they didn't have you know really
1: torpedoes for the matter like you know yeah. I mean like they, they had some but it wasn't like you a, a the big the deal. deck guns exactly you had your broadside conflict still right and again with with the with the dreadnought outclassing that Germany had I honestly think that they could have just done a massive dam and even, but even if they didn't win that's the thing even if Germany's fleet didn't beat England's fleet it would have just de- it would have destroyed enough of the fleet even if they lost the whole fleet if germany lost its entire fleet in the battle of the north sea against england it would have done such a damaging number to england that they would have had to focus more on that part of it than sending more and more land forces into into europe where germany could have made a bigger stand with with their their superior
0: military forces that does go into another thing that that raymer does bring up which is the um what if germany had just if if germany wanted to be aggressive it might it should have just started the war in like Nineteen oh four or something.
1: Ooh,
0: ooh, hot take, but yeah, it is. They... Because it would have been to their advantage to yeah. just steamroll France, crush yeah. France in nineteen fourteen or 1904 or 1905 something like that, uh, and and or Russia, whatever. And just because, purport, I guess, Germany's army was somewhat stronger then, um, and. By starting the war earlier, you wouldn't have had as much of an industrial buildup and, and as much, like, the British and the French wouldn't have been able to bring in as much resources and troops from the colonies, Right. in theory. Um, to support other stuff. was well, the thing, But in 1904, we're talking about, like, the
1: fleet, the German fleet had not been totally created at the time, you know, and so, like, the money was still there for the army. So, I think you're right in that one, or Rainbow would have been right in that one. Because, again, you would have had more funding for the specific things that Germany was good at, as compared to spending a ton of money on boats they weren't going to use.
0: You you mentioned earlier about, like, the the allegations that Germany is such a a militaristic country. Right. Uh, And we've all all heard that, and we've all seen the propaganda of the the Prussian officer and his monocle uh, sipping on on bourbon or smoking cigarettes. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, plotting the destruction of, of whole nations. And... Raymer rightfully points out and rather in his sort of autistic and also catty way just gives a big list of all the wars that france and britain did between 1815 and 1914 you know (laughs) versus germany germany prussia right and for germany prussia it's like we can probably name them it's uh the 1871 war with france yep. it's oh there was the three there was the three german wars of unification right there's the, the yeah so the koenig was... rates with austria the Bel- the danish war yeah and then this Fran- the franco-prussian one so there's just like yeah. three and then i guess you could throw in the the boxer rebellion
1: okay fair yeah germany did tar- uh, partake in that one so.
0: right. <laughs> but for france and britain it's like there's just the, the, the Boxer war. Rebellion was the like war a Tuesday. War. The, <laughs> oh, there's two Boer war Wars, by Three Afghan Wars. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure the French did stuff in the Sahara. Uh, They've been in yeah the, the Sahel forever, the, too. The Crimean know. War. Uh, just like, oh, yeah, the look, Crimean look around, War. Look around the whole world. Like Pick a spot. The French and British probably had a war there. Well, the French and the British also got involved in the American Civil War. Oh yeah,
1: they had advisors over here, and they were like waiting to on the sidelines. They wanted this division to happen so their banks could take one side or the other and start financing and redoing things. And yeah, they had their they had their fingers in all the pies across the whole planet. They were global empires, of course they did. You know that was kind of the deal. And we're going back to war guilt, right? Bringing this back to the whole thing that you brought up before about war guilt and who is guilty about this and, and why they would say Germany was guilty. They brought up a lot about, and I'm sure you've heard this about Germany's constant plotting against their neighbors, right? Like the, the concept of plotting, the whole like Prussian military doctrine of having a contingency plan, have 10 contingency plans, right? Yeah, for yeah. for anything, for any conflict, for even, even your allies. And that was just a thing they had going back hundreds of years. That was just always the Prussian military way. Yeah, it's, to,
0: you, you have the contingency plan so that when a, a war breaks out, it's like, and you're, you're in that like state of like anger and aggression and, and excitement really. Right, you're, yeah. You're just, you're- Emotional. You're, you're, you're not thinking straight yeah you just go to the filing cabinet reach in there plan, we got plan ABC <laughs> for right. invading country XYZ <laughs> <laughs> right pull out the plan and you can make little adjustments as not you know they had yeah. they, the New, the New York Times had a story about this or post five or ten years ago about how the Prussian general staff in 1910 had a plan to invade New York they did. And of course, you know they're, oh well, see, look how aggressive the, oh, the Germans well, are. It's like right. no, of course they had a, they probably had a plan to invade the moon. I mean, uh, I'm not you've got to just have the plan. Yeah. No, and you're it's not responsible not but,
1: to. Well, my point was is that there's hypocrisy in that in that yes, the Prussians were planning on all this, and so they always do, right? But at the same time, even in 1914, England had a contingency plan to invade France. Of course they did. So like, where's you know that that's that's it's it's this nonsensical type of war guilt where it's like, oh, you're guilty because X, Y, and Z that everyone else was doing no, at the same in, time. In,
0: intention and planning for things are two entirely different things.
1: Exactly. Yeah, they didn't have the intent. They just have the if if you screw with us, we have the op the it, option to it, destroy. He's you. kind of
0: a fag, but doesn't General Matt isn't General Mattis famous? His famous quote something like. Uh, always have a plan to kill everyone you meet. Yeah. And he's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like,
1: but that's the thing. It's like, well, and, and the, the, the American army blue book for training was written by a, a Prussian. So, you know, back in the... Uh, I forgot when they trained them. I don't know if it was the... I think it was the revolution. Are you was, talking about DeKalb? Not sh- Maybe.
0: I'm not sure. one guy who's... or. Uh, i can't
1: remember who it was one of the one of them wrote this the the what is the consider the army blue book and it's like the originally it was written by a prussian for a training manual i'm pretty sure during the revolution
0: so uh god who's the other famous prussian advisor uh I... oh i know what you're talking about you know the one who they have like parades for and stuff in america used to be a big hero and yeah It's I... kind of forgotten because of you know, right? Then Anti, anti-German. I, mean, I, think, I know DeKalb because there's a big statue of him over in Annapolis, and then uh, the other one is escaping my mind. It's
1: it starts, it's a Vaughn something, and I can't remember what it's it a Vaughn
0: s. I keep thinking Stauffenberg, but yeah, that's it's not
1: Stoltenberg, is it? No. No, no, no,
0: no, no. That's no. I know. Yeah. Whatever. Sorry, guy. I forgot your name. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Lost to history, I suppose. <laughs> uh. Yeah. So, uh, you you were saying. You were saying markets and economies oh, yeah. and uh, who control the who controls those for our listeners who don't already know.
1: Oh yeah. so at the time and this this <laughs> stock markets and all these other fun things that were played against all these these place, uh, places places, um, bankers and international elites. Wow, how funny would that be that people you know are those it's the same ones that made giant economic gains during the Napoleonic Wars and stuff, um, as I'm sure you know, uh, Jews. So the thing is, is that these are the guys who do it, right? Like this is, this is what, and then Raymer talks about this, right? This is where we get into the fun citations, the Alex Jones kind of stuff on, on Raymer's part, but it's, it's not, this is the part where you actually have citations, right? This is the, the there are
0: citations for this stuff. I I feel like he, this manuscript, he might've just written when he was old and he didn't get around to adding in the citations or or nobody did. But the thing is, there's a lot of quotes that's like, I can't. I don't know where this is from, and it's it often it's, yeah. it's like an English quote or a French quote that's translated into German, so you can't you can like, yeah. back translate it and search kind it, but of, that but not doesn't really. really work.
1: But that's the thing, though, is that like these, so the Jewish elites or whatever that were running these types of things, and this is again the banking thing, and this is the reason why the United States got involved too. Again, we mentioned earlier uh, the Federal Reserve being signed into uh, signed into existence through executive order in nineteen December nineteen thirteen, yeah, and you know it's just oh ironic that that happens to be the case that now all the major powers that was the last one that needed a federal reserve was the united states and so whenever the united states then has their federal reserve and there's an international banking clique that now controls the monetary powers of all the places or or at least can benefit from all the wars they start doing this type of thing. So there's – not to say that the Jews are obviously responsible for the First World War well, out and out. Well, no, I'm not necessarily disagreeing, but I, there's – what I'm saying is that we can't say that I, – I all right, let me rephrase They're this. They're the I, unnamed great power in true, this whole thing. True, true. That is true. They are the shadow power that is not talked about in this, and they have been for quite some time before this as well doing a ton of wars throughout the 1800s. But what I'm saying is while uh, while we're, while we're on, on the subject of guilt and placing blame for the First World War um, – I, I don't think that it's not necessarily. I don't want to use the word fair because Jews are never fair. But it's it's the concept of is it right to say that the Jews are solely responsible for World War One? I? I don't think so. I do but I do wholeheartedly believe and understand and know, and we all know this because it's it's fact. They capitalized wholeheartedly on doing that. Yeah. Now, they- and, and they, they put out, things in they motion. They came out.
0: They came out with the most
1: right, of stuff course. After and, the war. and they they position themselves to do that. And it's the same thing that happened with the Rothschilds and the Napoleonic War, right? It's the exact same thing that happened. That stock
0: market uh, transition they did out of out of Waterloo and all that crap. Well, hold on. So, oh, yeah, for, for those of you who haven't seen it, there's a good movie. Uh, it's called The Rothschilds, right? By um, Oh yeah, by Dr. Goebbels. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can find it anymore online. I watched it a few years ago, but. The movie is about the Rothschilds' uh, family in 18, you know, the, the Napoleonic Wars, and they were helping to finance England uh, majorly. And one of the things, one of their major schemes, and actually there's a more recent British show about this. Um, I'm surprised. One. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, oh, we're we're just helping the plucky Jewish banker get all the money to uh, General, General Wellington across across Spain. It, it's, it's of course portrayed, you know, in a good way, but right, they're course. admitting the truth of it. Yeah, um, that the Rothschilds basically were sending had to get money from I think I think Vienna to London, hmm. and so they were helping to smuggle it. But the main the main thing that you're alluding to with the Waterloo bit is that during the battle of, or before the battle of Waterloo, um the what it was nathan rothschild whoever whichever rothschild was in in britain in london was making big moves on the stock market and he had to know win or lose on the battle yeah and he had to know it's the ultimate gamble before everyone else he had to know three hours before everyone else or six hours who won the battle so he could make his moves and and rip everybody off hard so he had a, a an agent who he sent to the battlefield basically to watch and see what happens and then relay i think they used a primitive like telegraph yeah
1: you're were, you're were telling me about that and it's it's fascinating technology it's it's, it's so cutting relay, edge
0: to, to relay the information across the channel get it to him and then he made his moves like ripped off everybody uh and that's and that. that yeah <laughs> just just a one one little thing on their the the jews the rothschild family specifically but the jews like Taking power and, and getting more power in Britain. Right. And that also. And ben- I'm and benefiting from European wars. <laughs>
1: no, true. And that's the thing. is, And then I think that that's what they started to realize is that they could benefit heavily off of wars. And it became more and more. Not that they, they realized that, but they, they really started to be able to take advantage of that. To where. Because if you notice, the amount of warfare that happens post the Napoleonic Age pro, compared to prior. Seems to ramp up in a hundred-year span of time. Now there's tons of wars all over the world. They're all like wrong.
0: small wars, though. I mean, between 1815 and 1914, it, it's right. Like there's, there's, a bunch no, of, there's no big wars. There's no
1: grand war, I mean, but other... there's a ton of them. There's a ton of them, and, they, and there's for different reasons and different things. And most of them have monetary reasons. Again, look at look at Africa. Scramble for Africa is one of the biggest ones for England. If we're going to take a tangent off of, of Germany and everything else in the Great War, and we're going to look at uh, the economic the economic um, conquest of of africa by england right like what what was the purpose of that uh diamond mines right like these types of things spices mining Mm -hmm. food all this other stuff precious metals and resources and all this other stuff who owns all of those mines in south africa now and who who basically financed them then it was Um, the dutch oh yeah <laughs> they wish but unfortunately it is it is the jews right the, the the jewish uh the jewish diaspora owns a lot of those things and that's where you get the diamond trades coming out of right it's like a big commodity for them and so these these types of things have been in motion throughout the 1800s as power grabs economic power grabs but this is all we go we went we mentioned the uh the the American Civil War and uh-huh. France and England's uh, involvement in the American Civil War. So England sent advisors and this goes out into the to the the Rothschild thing. This, this this directly talks into to the the creation of what's going on further and and war profiteering, right? So England's uh, Federal Bank Financed the American South, the Confederate states, uh, and sent um, you know, military advisors to the Confederacy and all this other stuff, while France did the opposite for the, for the North. So they were financing uh, the Union side of the, of the war, and the, uh, the British were financing the Confederate side of the war. But uh-huh. it's still the same banking family from both England and France, so they're funding both sides of the war. Where do we see that any other time? I'm, you know, yeah. So they are—they're funding both sides of the war. They're profiting one way or the other, right? Regardless of what it goes, and they—they they would profit uh, whether there was win or lose, with the exception with these. They wanted—they wanted the Confederacy to win. Both sides wanted the Confederacy to win. This is why France—France France took a back seat in their funding of the northern of the northern conflict, while they were allied to that, or not really allied, but they had the advisors going over there and doing That's all this. Yeah, but they didn't they didn't fund the north as much as England funded the south. And the reason being is because they wanted the north to lose. And the reason why they wanted the north to lose is because it, America at the time didn't have central banking. They didn't have federal reserves and all that other stuff, right? As we know, it didn't happen until 1913. So in the 1850s, right, 1860s and all this other stuff, they didn't have that. And this this goes into Lincoln specifically of what happened afterwards and why Lincoln was assassinated. And so during... Uh, well, okay, where are you getting all this from? Huh? I don't, I don't
0: read about the Civil War. Oh, I, oh. I, I've been
1: like... I thought this was common knowledge, honestly. Like <laughs> no, I, it's not. Oh. <laughs> I,
0: got, I was very much turned off to the Civil War by most of my schooling. Basically everything to do with yeah. American history, just because it's presented in the gayest Way possible? Yeah, no, um, it is. It's boring as I'll get out. So I always avoided it. But um, yeah, where, where where does one read about those?
1: <sighs> I had I couldn't begin to tell you how many different sources. Uh, there's. It's. It's literally um, reliable and easily read. Oh yeah. Um, for plebs, plebs <sighs> like me. I well actually what we can do is I can get uh, I can I can find the sources from my my library or whatever and pick out what books I, I grab these things from and we can put it in the description for the uh, for the show. Well we that's
0: alright. This is a, a whole another discussion but let's just kind of yeah let
1: me just wrap this up real quick because this this kind of does tie into to the the. Again, the concept of, of the Jews getting into the First World War, like this does actually surprisingly, the American Civil War does tie into this slightly, um, and that was so um, they were they wanted the banks wanted the Americans uh, in the South, the Confederacy, to win the war so that America would be split between two. It's always easier
0: to control people when they're split. I mean, yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and the, but the reason being is so that they could establish these Central European banks to then rebuild the the war-torn countries. that was the point of it, right um, So obviously the union won that conflict and that was at, after that happened um, Lincoln created the greenback. He created the first real hard American currency um, and that supplanted the need for foreign banking from Europe and everything else like that. And so then he gets assassinated and all that other fun stuff. Um, and you don't see until later the. So you're these. telling
0: me Lincoln was based in anti-Semitic. I really hate to say it, but yes. Wow. Um. Yeah. So Lincoln was actually. I mean, we all everybody knows he wants he wanted to send the blacks back to Africa. Yeah, and he did that with. Uh, and he like you know, told them he told Frederick Douglass like, hey.
1: <laughs> y'all got to go back. He also had a quote somewhere, and this is this can be found. It's like a real quote by Lincoln. Whatever he said, if I could win this war without freeing a single slave, I'd do it oosh yeah so uh i uh, yeah anyway people need to rethink the lincoln question yeah, i think anti
0: Beale? i'm gonna tear down the uh, yeah the lincoln, lincoln memorial. memorial well it's
1: the thing they might as i'm assuming they would want to anyway there's fascists on those things like he had he was a like, lincoln was a total fascist Did in you know there,
0: there's a there's a park in dc um it's over like on the east side of the Capitol, where there's a statue of lincoln who's freeing a negro slave and the black guy is like Cringing at like Massa Lincoln's like feet, it's so, <laughs> what? <it's> so 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 <laughs> oh. not okay. <laughs> <laughs> non kosher. Sur- somehow it didn't get torn down. I remember. I I think the the cops like they just didn't get to that one, or like the cops like protected that one because they because it's Lincoln, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lincoln
1: gets a big pass because he was the union the union leader, but at yeah, the same that, time, that
0: statue. You're so you're telling me that statue is historically inaccurate. Lincoln, he didn't d- want... didn't want a free.
1: No, it, well, because he didn't Three care. It wasn't it wasn't to me, it wasn't that wasn't the whole point. The Lincoln's major goal was to maintain the powerhouse of the Union. Because he understood. Again, Lincoln was kind of a visionary in the concept that he understood uh the powerhouse that the the United States could have been as an empire, right? Like he gets that in comparison to the European empires and everything else like that. They were rivals to England and France and all this other stuff. And had the Confederacy actually won and broken them up. The North would have been under the jurisdiction of a Rothschild bank in the 1860s, and the South would have also been under the jurisdiction of a different Rothschild bank in the 1860s, mm-hmm. and so you would have had the the Reconstruction effort after that would have been totally funded by Jewish uh, money from Europe, and that's kind of the deal. But that didn't happen. See, this is this is why this is where it turns into World War One, right? This is how we get into that. They didn't get another large move towards having more financial control in other places, right? So they in had in the U.S. in the U.S. specifically, right, and so. They kept trying to drag the U.S. into this thing over and over and over, and then in 1913 they finally got their wish,
0: and that's oh, what with the with the Federal Reserve, right?
1: That's why you see the, the pictures of all the the rabbis in New York
0: going out and celebrating in the streets when it happened. Well, why? I mean, why didn't they drag America into World War One earlier then? Well oh you mean like or yeah, or the, like why, yeah why why were Because well the reason being is because
1: you why you, wasn't
0: the the Jewish like Anglo international system able to get America to come into World War 1 sooner to help win that war faster so the reason that i've always been under the understanding of it
1: is because they didn't have the like one one it was detached from europe right physically like it's a physically detached thing from europe and while the united states is very close to europe there was no right. no there was, sentiment there was a
0: tradition of of not getting into other people's business yeah with
1: monroe doctrine and all their stuff they didn't want to be you know they, they wanted to be separate from it right so there was there was that element first off was there's a lot of opposition to get involved in a european conflict first and foremost the second thing that took them the longest to do was anti-Germanic sentiment. There's a lot of German immigrants here in the United States. It's been a part of our history for quite a long time. And it took them a long time, years, to to foment the anti-German sentiment required in order to get enough people to, to kind of get on the war train and war bandwagon. There's a really good, um, it's not really a book. It's kind of a pamphlet. Uh, that's called um, something about manufacturing hate or something. I'll, have to, I'll Again, we'll put it in the description or whatever I have it at home, um, where it just it shows all of this pre or uh, well early World War One anti-German propaganda it, for specifically the United States, um, and this kind of stuff was again created by Jewish press and everything else like that. So um, you you have this uh, you had this 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 aversion to conflict in Europe in the United States, even though they were on the banking train. Sure, that piece of the puzzle was already there. You still didn't have. Uh, a division between the American population and the European populations in order to get war. And they, they weren't close enough to the British, clearly, right? Like, that wasn't a thing. The American um, population had never been close to the Brits up to this point. Like, that was not—they weren't, like—England um, wasn't their greatest ally up until this point of, the, of, of, of history. Right. You know, in you the know America same...
0: had never been allied to England before 1914, right? I'm no, not, not that I am aware all. of. No, been no no co-op. Yeah, I mean they've been friendly. Yeah,
1: there's trade and cooperation and stuff, and they knew but it but as a parent never country. Been any joint military. No, not at all. all. They no. had they had more um, they had more uh, uh, joint military operations with the French before right. that. They did, you know. So the thing is, is that you had to have you had to have the propaganda come out to get people to want to care about England and France and want to hate Germany. So there was a, a massive propaganda push that had to Happened and it took years for this to occur. That's why they obviously didn't get the, the U.S. into the war until halfway through it. So that was that was one element to that.
0: Well, it's funny that you mentioned the uh, uh, how long it took to get the Americans involved in the war, because uh, one of the the juiciest quotes that Raymer has is about the uh, how easy it was to get everybody to hate Germany as uh, above all the. Uh, broadly naive, uncritical, and facile Americans. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> like, and, ouch! <laughs> and, it,
1: and it's a heavy, it's a heavy blow. And he's right though, and because it, it, it was surprising how how short order it did take. But the thing is, again, if we're gonna go back to what he was talking about as far as Jew involvement in in the whole, the whole uh, conflict, uh, there's that that press issue, right? And if you control, obviously, all the press, you control the talking issues and all that other stuff. They didn't control all the press at the time, but they controlled enough of the press to where they were able to make it a resounding mainstream argument against Germany as compared to, you know, any type of counterthought to that. Yeah. So it's an overwhelming thing, really. And and while, to his credit, it is a – it's – it's weak-minded, he's not wrong, as far as the population is concerned, to be able to just to, to take that at face value. But we're also talking about the time, and this kind of goes into the discussion of, of nationalism and whatnot, and how that leads up to World War One as well, and plays into it, um, is that I there was that that massive nationalist sentiment that was still, you know, everywhere. And so you could play nations against each other, on like, you know, just by the populations. Um... By making it sound or feel like the uh, some other nation was a threat to your nation in some way, shape, or form, um, the the big propaganda piece I think that we all know about, uh, even as kids, that were taught about this kind of thing, was it was it was supposedly Germany's declaration of war on the United States it was the Zimmerman note. Right. The wheel. Yeah. Uh, so
0: yeah. So this is you no. Know, Raymer doesn't talk about the Zimmerman note. He doesn't really talk about the U-boat war too much. I don't think. I don't remember. He actually oh, he talks about it at all.
1: The U-boat war, while it, but, it was, it's almost, and I hate to say this because it, it's not, but it does, it does kind of come into the realm of insignificant when it comes to the causes of anything. It's, not, it's part of the war, obviously. Um, the Zimmerman note, though, is one of those those propaganda pieces that was utilized As again, we talked earlier about how the Prussians had a plan. Well, what, the, so
0: the Zimmerman note was from the German foreign secretary to the Mexicans saying, Hey guys who want to invade America and we'll support you.
1: Well, no, they, they, they pretty much said that, Hey, if you join the war on our side, you
0: we'll know, we'll give you, we'll give you back Texas and California.
1: Yeah. Texas, California, New Mexico, which the, is a, whole preposterous.
0: Area. I mean, uh, unless Zimmerman, I mean, I know there's a Barbara Tuchman book that argues the other way around. Um, I mean, was Zimmerman a complete moron? Like, why? Why would that? It's just too good to be true.
1: Well, yes and no. Ameri- I, I think the issue is the that, war effort. Well, okay. The, I think the, the big issue I think though is that Germany's foreign. And this is gonna sound. Um, this is gonna sound raw, but it's just I think it's the case is that there was a lot of ignorance regarding the Americas. Um, and how those powerhouses are still, were still setting up or s- still established in the early nineteen hundreds compared to the eighteen hundreds. So Germany, I'm pretty sure Zimmermann's idea of what was going on. Is that Mexico was a much larger power than it actually was at Uh the time? Um, As we know, Mexico used to actually be the the American powerhouse. Like before, there was the United States; there was Mexico. Mexico was the biggest power in North America. If Zimmerman
0: had just been more racist, he would have known better.
1: (laughs) Well, right. Or if if he, the thing, the the issue is that I don't think he really accounted for how much support um, Mexico had had from its its ties with Spain. And that was obviously completely null and void. Like, like the span, the, the Spain and Mexico had lost their their ties, obviously long before the Spanish American War, but that really solidified that. So in the late eighteen hundreds, the Spanish American War, right? This again, these are all these conflicts, you know, of the West that lead up to, to this to this world, the First World War. Um, the Spanish-American War being one of the bigger ones because it was a, a grab for, for uh, territory, right? Like, the Spain lost the Philippines and a bunch of other places to the United States. Um, they lost Cuba as, as a colony of their own, and all this other stuff has started the Cuban Revolution and all this other fun stuff in the early 1900s. Um, so mexico had had a lot of trade and a lot of other things with spain at the time including militaristic means that was basically negated after this happened after the the spanish-american war and mexico had become far more dependent on the united states than it was previously so the big issue there is that zimmerman i think underestimated the fact that mexico could become its own sovereign nation
0: at that specific time in history so you think you really sent the note Oh yeah, it, sure. wasn't, it wasn't a total forgery. No, 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 no. no I don't no, think no. it
1: was a forgery at all. I, 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 think it was hyped up far more than what was actually going on. I'm pretty sure. Basically, like, what
0: he was saying. What, I mean, was he saying? Was he saying like if if you join? Well, he was saying join the war. I mean, that's pretty damning, isn't it? it no, I,
1: it is. But it's like it was. It's the same thing that you would get anywhere else. Like, I mean, look at all the other nations and stuff that that France and England and 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 stuff encouraged overseas, right, about going, had, had they convinced so many other small colony areas, it wasn't just all by force to attack German colonies, right, in Tanzania and these other places, there was the war had, had, would reach Africa too, and so how, like all these other nations that had pre- peaceful trade with Germany up until this point, like they had to convince them, the only way they convinced them is, is, is by taking land, right, by land granting and everything else like that, now obviously the major powers had their own their own ideas they weren't intending on giving any land to other people they were going to take it all for themselves as we as we saw but it's it's like you it's a bribe you bribe them with something because the thing is you don't have the money to bribe the other nation outright but the other nation the other nations they'd be going to war with might have something you want. And so the the freshness of the Americas the, the we got to remember the American um the American Mexican War happened in the early you know the, the, the mid early 1800s you know prior to the, the civil war too obviously but it, it was still within recent memory to at that time in history to the point where Mexico had not forgotten the land that it lost from the United States. And so that wasn't actually I wasn't outrageous. Like while while it's damning, it's not an outrageous claim to say, Hey, if you go to war with this adjacent power, you can get your land back. The same thing happened I mean, with it was, Germany and did, France.
0: Did the Zimmer I don't remember the Zimmer note too well. Did it say like if if uh if America declares war on us, then you should come in on our side, or did it say yes. did it say preemptively come in? No, 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 it wasn't. Uh, it, yeah,
1: okay. no, it was, it was, it was the it was the prior. They did not say, "Hey, sneak attack America." But that's take- how the
0: propaganda portrayed it. Right, exactly. Sneak attack America.
1: Well, that was the th- yeah. They were like, "Hey," and they what well, the the propaganda made it sound is that they were trying to entice Mexico to attack America so that America couldn't get involved in a European.
0: War. Oh, so like everything in Jewish propaganda it was a misconstruing of a if then clause. Exactly. Okay, because yeah, they don't sure.
1: they you know they'd like to play with logic so pretty much what they were they were trying to use it as a contingency plan if America attacks us we will have allies in the northern you know in the in North America that can then join the war on our side and you know kind of alleviate the amount of tent of, ten, of, of forces and troops and everything else that the U.S. could send into the conflict by having this southern border issue. Not that Zimmerman or any of the German high command probably even thought that Mexico could do it. They might have, but that would have been an underestimation or overestimation of Mexico's power at the time.
0: If Germany Germany really knew what the game that they should have been (laughs) playing, they should have just sent all their Jews to New York to open up the border uh, that would have been the end of which, that <laughs> they, they, which kind of happened i guess yeah we'll see the thing <laughs> long, long is long term big lo- picture long term <laughs>
1: zimmerman note actually worked right and mexico <laughs> is actually taking back the southern states <laughs> uh, ew, womp womp that's uh... so that was more of a prophecy in the zimmerman note than
0: it, than it was actually a declaration of conflict um, all right well uh it, you know this whole we we really could do an entire show for like years going on end just talking about the outbreak of the First World War and right. <laughs> going into every one of these uh, issues in extreme depth, and people have. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we our intention today is just to give uh, a little bit of an overview of the the National Socialist cause or the National Socialist interpretation of World War Two, uh, and the best you know the best layout we have of that is is or World War, War One, but, right? Yes. Yeah, sorry, World yeah. War One. We'll do the other did, one later. <laughs> yeah, did, did anybody... Can you think of off the top of your head? Did anybody else write a book on... I mean, I guess in Mein Kampf, Hitler talks about it plenty.
1: Yeah, he talks about the First World War, but
0: not... Not in the not same like kind, the, kind of historical, yeah. like, play-by-play way that... Um, going into the uh, this diplomatic exchanges in the way that Raymer does. Yeah, so Raymer
1: had that, and, uh, but he also had the, the aspect of, of the fact that he wasn't dead after the war. So he had a lot, yeah. of, a lot of, you know, uh, I guess... Uh, What's, what's the word I'm looking for time access
0: to sources and yeah sort of hindsight thing. and all the other funds that they could utilize you know so um, but the la- last couple of points uh, SPD uh, so you mentioned the the social oh de- uh,
1: yeah so the social Social Democratic Party um, was obviously the, like, the, the
0: German f- Liberal Party yeah
1: yeah well it was the it was the first it was it was technically a liberal party. I, actually, I would probably say it's outright a liberal party because it was one of the first ones that was influenced by Marxism as well uh, in Germany. But it was technically the first party in Germany, like as far as like a, an actual party system was concerned. Um, and they had opposition to Bismarck and all that other fun stuff, where right? they weren't fans of that. Um, there was a guy who um, who's the leader. The leader of the SPD was his name. The original one was um, August Bebel he wasn't a jewish guy but he was a, he was um, kind of a marxist dude who, who kind of went away from marxism actually towards the end uh, and then he he died in 1919 or sorry 19, 1913 he 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 somehow died in 1913 people mm-hmm. say it's like a, you know like I, I would say that there's a so maybe a slight mystery around his his death in 1913 funny enough of the time frame uh, but then another guy got in charge of that who was much more moderate um is name I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he he um the the new leader of the SPD during the during the the wartime uh, was more moderate and he actually was pro war. It was like so the SPD became a pro war type of thing, but there was a schism in the SPD at about 1917 where the um, the more radical leftist element of it broke away uh, and started the first communist movement, first communist party in Germany at the time, and that party. I started to do revolutionary tactics, obviously 1917, 1918, that led to the abdication of the Kaiser, Um, and there was a a panel of six guys, It was a council of six guys that took over to create Weimar afterwards, and two of those six were Jews, so one-third of the revolutionaries were communist Jews. Uh, part of this uh, thing obviously there was many more to that the whole apparatus and there's there's names was, was the kurt
0: list. eisner one of them uh or, not of the council no no he he was yeah. he was okay
1: yeah he was he was involved but he wasn't he wasn't one of the six councilmen that would technically be the heads of the because he even he, he, he was big the after the
0: war i i know from from reading other stuff i mean Raymer has a funny quote about him uh he says something like he he uh eisner later got the punishment he deserved in the bullet of <laughs> count arco valley <laughs> <laughs> womp womp <laughs> well
1: there's that so yeah that's that was kind of the deal so they um, the there was a, a major jewish influence in the spd and then you know like to well they the major jewish influence in the spd caused the schism really to create what you have as communist parties and communist revolutionary parties in 1917 in germany um which we saw there was a ton
0: of outbreak of communist revolution across europe right during this time period right. um and raymer Re- doesn't really talk too much about that that stuff and he doesn't um he doesn't talk too much about how like the communists were pushing for uh for withdrawal from the war I mean, hitler does man. of course yeah hitler uh, does uh, and why not that's, up, a, that's something deserving of, of its own attention but um
1: i was surprised that raymer didn't though
0: that was the one thing that i was kind of picking up
1: like while i was reading i, I through feel it. he
0: was f- pushing through the world war one stuff to get to 400 pages of explaining how world war Two was the jews fault
1: true which is e- uh, honestly World War II is easier to blame fully on that as yeah. compared to the First World War because again the First World War I think was more of Jewish opportunism take at its at its peak like the most extreme that it could possibly be like there was probably no point in time in history that had more hand rubbing
0: than nineteen fourteen the the best um a, a great book on that is Eighth Crusade oh which is this yes unknown <laughs> book uh, I I stumbled across it in a, a used bookstore a few years ago it's by a british officer who had served in palestine and it it very simply and directly and straightforwardly lays out how the jews benefited from the um sykes picot treaty and um the declaration the balfour declaration Mm -hmm. and uh it was in this book was published in in germany in like 1939 or 1940 um by in English by this British guy, I, I don't know if he sent the manuscript. I don't, I don't know how exactly this this came about, but it's a very good book. It's it's fairly you can find it fairly cheaply online, actually. But um, it's it is hardcore. It starts off with I forget the first line, but it's something like Oh uh, yeah, the uh, the most hated people in the world. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, because then you say that the 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 guy who wrote it was one of the campaign officers or whatever in the. In, you think he was an L. Staff or something? Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. I um, know I bring that up because that that exam that book examines like a whole other Jewish aspect of World War One, which is hmm. the how did they benefit from the deals that came out of the Middle East from World War one? oh the and, fall of the Ottoman Empire, yeah,
1: secularization throughout and, and all that yes, stuff yeah. yeah cuz yeah that again well the, the even the concept of Zion, zionism at the time was very new uh, not new but it for like for europe it was kind of newish because they did it emerge in the 1800s was the the big push towards zionism um, especially in england england was big with the zionistic um, crowd right that was the big deal which is where you get the the later mandates and stuff after world war 2 they finally got them to, to, to give palestine to to the zionists that were the essentially the zionist lobby that was in the the british parliament in the 1800s um, So there was a major major issue with that, too. Now, there was also uh, news articles, and this can be found. I don't have a, a proper citation for this or whatever because this was just in basic news articles at the time. There was complaints of 6 million displaced Jews during the First World War. This was a thing that the American press was putting out. Yeah, I've out. seen
0: this sort of stuff.
1: Right, so. yeah, like Times and everything else like that would put out. And it's, it's the recurrent number, right? We know that Jews love their numerology and all this other fun stuff and their esoteric cult fun things. The, the number 6 million comes up quite a number of times. Um, and as we know, there were not 6 million Jews in Europe at the time. And there's no way. So they, they, these numbers are consistently inflated all, all the time. Um, but it, it goes to show that this type of thought process was already...
0: In in working, it was already working
1: during the First World War. That would be utilized then again. Oh, what in the are you second. talking
0: about? They just the, the first <laughs> those were just lies and mistakes and whatever. But the, the six million in World War Two actually happened. Oh, oh, right. I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm being a bigot. <laughs> yeah. The the main point that the Raymer hits on to do with uh, Versailles and the end of the war is the war guilt clause. And so I guess uh, apparently what happened is this, the U.S. State Department sent a note to Germany in october of 1918 saying all right well if you if germany agrees to recognize that you have done uh, an uh, an attacking war uh by land sea, and air and to compensate us and the allied powers for everything that was destroyed in the you know in this war the this note was written in english sent to the germans and then was translated by um by a certain dr solf uh who was the minister of foreign affairs and i think it was wilhelm solf he had been the former governor of n- german new guinea and into side thing but he studied sanskrit too i don't know he was he was kind of a weird guy also he raymark accuses him of being a freemason um wikipedia confirms so wow all right <laughs> <laughs> So maybe there's something to it. But Validated. <laughs> doc, Dr. Sulf mistranslated uh cliff, or attack as Oncliffe. No, sorry. The original note said aggression. The English word was aggression and he translated it as attack uh, in German. And so, I don't know, Hindenburg and Ludendorff and the Kaiser were looking at this note and they're like, oh, OK, this doesn't just saying that we waged we did an attack on France and Belgium. This is true, um, right? It's like, yeah, we punched you first. You you took you were fixing to swing and we hit you first um and you know, from that mistranslation then germany was sort of locked into agreeing to the war guilt clause in the versailles treaty which said that germany is responsible for the war right and that you know you would think it's just a matter of semantics like you've lost you know maybe you've just lost the war and okay you have to admit that you you're at fault or something but they the allies kept using this after the war to like bludgeon the germans into keep into right. paying more money
1: not just paying um, more money but also giving up industrial uh production well, so the, the the french occupation of the ruhr was a very big part of that
0: Well, and not just these economic and 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 diplomatic things but also um it was like a means of Guilting the German people and like bullying them into into hating themselves, right? And of course, you know we, we know that this happened time after and time the, after, again after yeah. the Second World War in a really big way, right? But it was sort of already there in the after the First War, and there was much more of a backlash. Uh, people like Hitler, right, were of saying, "No, that's bullshit. We are not responsible uh, for this war, and we're not going to accept that guilt." Uh, whereas, and nobody was, I'm sure there people, I'm sure some people were, but there were people who were hitting back hard and weren't just saying, oh, yeah, uh, okay, we were guilty, but, like, Please be nice to us. There right, the conservative kind of mindset wasn't there as much. Well, and you can you couldn't have it. And Raymer kind of brings this up slightly too when he talks about
1: like you know the partition of things, whatever. Right, they break up. Like, there was that part where he talks about like the the, the carving up or whatever the term he used because they took so much from Germany land wise. Uh-huh. You know, after the First World War, they took away the Danzig Corridor, they took away Alsace-Lorraine, right? They gave away all these places to other countries. You almost like Germany didn't just lose the war; they were getting carved up. You know. It was a total like you had you you almost couldn't accept the guilt even if you were a German person because like it's what's next you have nothing left to, like they're taking everything from you legitimately.
0: Yeah, it does it it's, it does seem like in 1918 the in a way the German leadership was naive and in that they accepted this deal they they like believed uh, Wilson and the 14 points they believed right. that that was an honest offer and I don't know Wilson was a weird guy maybe it was right. <laughs> But there was no way that, as a practical matter, there's no way that... The French and the British were going to allow that to be any the fourteen points and self determination of, of no. peoples to be implemented at least as far as the Germans are concerned. Right. Well, that's
1: why they carved it all up. But the but the, that was uh, the biggest thing too is the Churchill point too is that the destruction of Germany coming into World War Two, is that they have to take out this central power that specifically tilts the what is considered the classical balance of power in Europe, and they Germany was becoming this big this big issue a thorn in the side of England and France France's long established hegemony, and so. The carving up of Germany and and the demilitarization and all this other stuff that led to obvious World War II was designed specifically to crush Germany and never allow it to have the ability for it to become a rival to the other European powers again, which is why they stripped them of all of their colonies in 1918 as well, Um, you know, giving it to France and England and whoever else was in the in the vicinity. So there was there they wanted to do all of that and on top of that make everybody feel guilty as shit for doing it, which. I would imagine the German people were probably cool with, okay, we don't have colonies, it's not that big of a deal, it's detached from us, we don't really care. I can see them being upset, obviously, about Alsace-Lothringen, you know, as an actual thing, it's just, it's right there in Europe, same thing with the Danzig Corridor, cutting Prussia off from the rest of Germany, um, all these things, but the, the whole... You can't have the economic problems that came from that as well. You can't have, you know, the 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 stripping of, of, of Colonies the stripping of, of industrialization That's another thing it put a lot of Germans out of work when the factories were turned over to places like France that were in German soil for that matter right like the specifically yeah, right, there the were um, You you have that with the occupations giving all this stuff because again They weren't just taking money from Germany. They were taking all of their resources They were they were but this was this is part of the Jewish policy that comes into it and Raymer talks about about this as well. Like, this is where he talks about, you know, the, the uh, Jewish retribution and things like that, right? This vindictive, this vindictive element of this of the Jewish population that it's never good enough to just win a war. You have to win, and then you have to like really hurt and, you know, cause cause pain to your enemy. Like you have to do a lot of really sick, sadistic shit to them, and that's what was going on. Germany was becoming like sadized after the after the conflict ended for no reason. Literally. And they utilized the guilt thing as again, there was so much war hype, so much propaganda that was utilized by the Jewish press to hate the Germans that doing something so atrocious afterwards didn't seem that that outrageous to them. You know, and so well, there was, on to the
0: to the French and British and American general public.
1: Right. Well, that's the thing, is they, they, they desensitized them to the dehumanization of German people. It was the first time in history that we had that much Dehumanizing propaganda against an, uh, a, an opposing nation, as far as how they they went about
0: uh, they, talking about uh, the, the people themselves. Arguable, but I would agree with you on. As I'm within far as, within European
1: nations. With, among say.
0: civilized yes nations.
1: Yeah. As you know, we can go back to the puckle gun and the square bullets against the Ottomans all day long. But as far as within European civilized nations, it was the only time in history where you started to see true vitriolic hatred of not the government, not the military, but of the ab of the basic citizen. That was kind of the issue. Yeah. So And that was totally fomented by Jews.
0: Yeah, and and I think we're seeing the same we're definitely seeing the same thing now with the with I don't want to talk too much about Russia, but we're definitely (laughs) seeing the same thing right now with Russia. Oh yeah. I just saw an article in the paper, the Washington Post the other day about it was about snipers in Ukraine. And the basic It was really weird seeing this in Washington Post because it was it was talking about how awesome these snipers in Ukraine are, and about how cool their like little their their culture is among each other, and how they enjoy like blowing people's brains out and popping off popping skulls, uh, yeah, fucking uh, like Don Bass militia men Mm. and their own uh, people well, um, and I, right and I'm reading this and it's like I I, you know on the one hand I understand you need a mil- like a, a, a very hyper aggressive very violent mentality to have effective soldiers right the other hand this is the Washington Post Lipschitz read this right political hacks read this People, people who go to war don't read this. I don't think. Right. I don't think there's a single person in the military <laughs> who has ever picked up the Washington Post, other than Mark Milley, it, it, oh, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or in an ironic manner, kind of thing. Right? Like, there, no one's, nobody no one's reads the Washington Post, and, and and the and the other people, the sort of people who would find this kind of article cool, like. I don't know, second amendment people, conservatives, uh, boomer gun people. None of them are reading this article. So why yeah. is this article talking about like almost being pornographic and 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 pushing ultra violence against Russians or? Uh, Don Bass militia. Why is this being published in the Washington Post to liberals? And like I thought about it, and it's, well, it's because they want to desensitize these yeah, people. Yeah, it's the kill. It's kill this mad brute style pop propaganda from the First World War as well. You
1: know, it's it's the same thing. You see it every time they ramp this stuff up. It's and you and you know what's strange though is you don't see that type of propaganda utilized against non-white combatants. You didn't see this type of vitriol spit against the Vietnamese. You didn't see it or about the the Iraqis Koreans. or the Afghans. Yeah, none of that. You never see that happen. But when it comes to white-on-white warfare, the Jews are at their finest when they talk about Well, you have to be that. because
0: it's like e- easy to tell white soldiers, like, all right, got to go kill these people. Right. And they're muslims or They're foreigners or not, whatever, yeah. you know clearly not like you it's yeah. easy but to desensitize somebody to killing somebody who looks very much like you is way harder
1: what well, yeah i suppose is the case yeah
0: um the other the other like parallel with with world war one and the russia situation now um you know this is a a, a history focused podcast so we don't lead off with this stuff but <laughs> we'll 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 put it in there just just for your amusement is russia is very much in germany and austria's position as far as the the morality of starting this war anglo-america is and i should say jewish controlled anglo-america right yeah because yeah. expert at provoking a war and acting like they didn't do it yeah and making it look like you did it yeah and playing if you, the victim that's and, and, the and whole if you thing? and if you russia or germany act on the precepts of honor and are very restrained, do not go to war, accept tons and tons of provocations, do not go to war, do not go to war, do not go to war. And then you finally do, then, of course, they're going to cry out in pain and say, oh, my God, oh, they're so aggressive, blah, blah, blah. It's that old saying. like, whoa, uh, eight years, I mean, what has it been, eight years since the Crimea, the, yeah, the Maidan yeah. um, coup d'etat by Victoria Nuland. And and even then, they were crying about Russia taking, uh, taking Crimea um, after Zog had taken the rest of Ukraine well, effectively. Right.
1: And, but it's not even the point. The point is like they, they hail democracy all the time. But when this when, when one nation act or one area has a legitimate democratic vote that they want to secede or right. go to else, yeah, it's like oh, oh, we, can't, we can't... But of like democracy only works if they want state to work. If a democracy works outside of their favor, it's not democracy all of a sudden. Yeah. It's ridiculous. of so, but no of they, they, they a, a state of 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 a of provoking right or like or poking the bear they know how to push aryan buttons i suppose is, is the best way to do it they know how to get right up to the line and eventually as you said your honor has to kick in and eventually something has to happen you know nato's been provoking this well nato's been provoking this since, since sarajevo right since the 1990s mm. like there's been a consistently a continuous encroachment upon russia um since the fall of the soviet union and everything else taking advantage of the weakened state of of, of you know of russia and so it was only a matter of time before something like this was going to break out. And I think that obviously the Jews know that and that's why they're continuing to do this. It's why they play the slow long game at how to provoke these things into, into, into manifesting.
0: Yeah. I, I'm sure you could draw a lot, a lot more parallels on this but uh, we, should, uh, we should wrap it up. So thanks for the episode and see you next time. See ya. <laughs>